start the Ad Hoc Committee. So first of all, could I just welcome everybody to the meeting this morning, to the Ad Hoc Committee on the COVID-19 response. Um, the agenda item one is on the minutes of proceedings of the previous meeting held on the 9th of July. Members are asked to note these minutes, which are at page two of your packs, and which the Deputy Chairperson, Mr Christopher Stalford, agreed. Members should also note that the minutes of evidence from that meeting have been published in the official report available on the Committee's uh, webpage. Agenda item two is a statement from the Minister of Health. I received notice uh, on the 17th of December that the Minister wished to make a statement to the Ad Hoc Committee at today's meeting. A copy of the statement that, minister intends, that the Minister intends to make is included in your pack at page six. I'd like to welcome the Minister of Health to this meeting of the Committee. Before the Minister makes a statement, I would like to remind members that following the statement, there will be an opportunity to ask questions, but not to make speeches. Members who ask short, sharp, focused questions will be invited to ask a supplementary if they wish to do so. Members who engage in preambles, if we may say, um, however, might find that they don't get to ask a supplementary question, because our task here is to try to allow as many members to contribute and to ask questions to the Minister as at all possible. Uh, I would therefore ask members for their cooperation, and I will, of course, be expecting ministers to give succinct answers as well. I invite the minister to make a statement, which should be heard by members without interruption. Uh, minister. Um, and thank you, Chair. And I, I thank the committee for its time for affording me the opportunity to make this statement following decisions taken by the executive last week. The health service, as we know, is at a critical juncture. The National Institute for Health and Care Excellence advises that there is an increased risk of adverse patient outcomes where hospital bed occupancy rates exceed 90%. And in the period since the 21st of October, regional bed capacity has not dropped below 92%, and there are only five days in which it has been lower than 95%. Some hospital sites have consistently been operating above 100% capacity for this period. Members will have seen the news last week showing the stark reality this prevents for healthcare professionals across the service as they diligently do all they can to provide care to all who require it. The current levels of demand exceed those reaching the peak of Surge 1, and this is despite the restrictions that have been in place over recent weeks. Case numbers are increasing, demand on hospital bed is increasing, and this cannot continue unchecked. The health and social care system simply cannot continue <coughs> to deal with sustained rising demand. Members should note that these statistics precede the second surge period, and it is expected that this situation will have deteriorated further. I must stress that this situation has occurred despite the fact that overall there is much more, there is much more elective care being carried out now than during the first wave in April 2020. And I have asked for every opportunity to be fully explored uh, which is available, and that includes the establishment of a day elective centre in Lagan Valley Hospital and the relocation of urgent surgery lists to the South West Acute Hospital. Northern Ireland has a funded capacity of 70 crit critical care beds, and I want to emphasise that this is not a simple matter of increasing the number of physical beds. Our critical care beds are ex extremely staffed intensively, particularly with regards to nursing staff. To put the impact of that in context, increasing critical care beds by 15 requires more than 100 additional nurses to provide the level of care required. Nurses therefore have to be moved from other parts of the HSC with a severe impact on other activity, particularly on elective surgical activity. The impact is not only on those staff treating COVID-19 patients 
or staff treating non-COVID-19 patients. They all report the, the moral stress they feel from not being able to provide their normal high level of care. It is essential that hospitals are able to care for every patient who will benefit from treatment. The system cannot provide the scale of response required to maintain critical care and acute service demand of higher than medium surge and maintain urgent surgery at the same time. The only way, way to possibly avoid further urgent surgery cancellations is to ensure that action is taken to limit the spread of the virus sufficiently to reduce hospital demand before it reaches critical levels. Measures to increase hospital capacity would allow an increased epidemic level to be managed, but this would also inevitably be associated with increased deaths, deaths and might be limited by the need for staff to self-isolate as a consequence of health care related outbreaks in hospitals or clusters and outbreaks in the community. It is also the case that the associated levels of community transmission would inevitably result in a further significant increase in outbreaks in care homes among extremely vulnerable older people, as was experienced in the first wave, which will result in excess deaths in the population. However, for practical purposes, and as I, has, as I have often stated in this chamber, it is simply not possible to increase hospital capacity in the short to medium term, because the key factor here is the supply of staff, and given the specialist skill set required, there is a very long lead time for this. While some marginal gains in capacity can be made in specific areas, this comes at the cost of reduced capacity elsewhere in the system, as it involves the redeployment of existing staff. In addition, when doubling time for cases is seven to ten days, even a doubling of hospital capacity would buy only a limited period of relief before intervention was required. And this indicates a disappointing response to the two weeks of restrictions which we previously had. ICU occupancy is also stable at around 30 deaths, and they continue to vary from day to day, but they are not falling. We anticipate the case numbers will continue to rise over the coming days, with a more rapid increase as we near the holiday period. Hospital emissions will remain stable or increase slightly until shortly before Christmas. Then they will begin to rise again. The rate of increase will depend on how much RT increases during the current two-week period. Based on experience during early October and seasonal effects on virus transmissions, it is reasonable to anticipate that RT will be between 1.4 and 1.8. This will lead to a significant rise in all aspects of the epidemic on top of a high baseline. In contrast to the position in the first two waves of, of the epidemic, the impact of Christmas arrangements on RT is difficult to predict, and there is likely to be an overall decrease in context contacts, but increased household and intergenerational mixing. Given that the increase in transmission will occur in these next two weeks for our relatively high baseline, it was critically important to consider what options were available to prevent the hospital system from becoming overwhelmed, and preferably to reverse the current trends to free up capacity for non-COVID diagnostics and treatments. If we did not take any action on the current set of restrictions and relaxations remained in place into January, the likely course has been considered by the modelling group shows that by the end of January, with an RT rate of 1.6, over 2,500 patients would require a hospital bed, and even with an RT at 1.8, that would have exceeded 6,000. Cases would have continued to rise exponentially beyond the end of January, as would hospital admissions and consequently deaths. Taking no action was simply not an option. Subsequently, I proposed a package of restrictions, which has been agreed by the Executive. 
The proposals are similar to those in place during the two-week circuit breaker of the 27th of November to the 10th of December, with modifications aimed at further enhancing those areas where compliance may have been lowest. The two-week circuit breaker did not bring the case numbers in Northern Ireland down sufficiently, and there are some potential reasons for this. The stay-at-home guidance was not being adhered to sufficiently, as mobility data proves. Contact tracing information suggests that click and collect may have been associated with increased transmission, particularly in indoor settings such as shopping centres. This coupled with a greater range of businesses opened under the essential retail category than was the case during the initial lockdown led to a much lower impact of the restrictions on the spread of disease. That is why we must enter a period of greater restrictions than before. We cannot afford to have another unsuccessful period of restrictions and dilution of the stay-at-home message. In terms of the duration of restrictions, the focus must be on getting RT below 1 and maintaining this for some considerable time. There has been a lot of focus on the RT value, which is appropriate. However, RT is not the only factor in determining action required. Whilst RT has been around 1 for the previous few weeks, the level of cases within the community is still much too high, and this is causing prolonged pressure on the health and social care system. RT must be sustained significantly below 1 for a number of weeks before the case numbers would be sufficiently low and impact will be felt in the health and social care system. We are all aware that hope is around the corner. Vaccine rollout has begun and will continue into 2021, with those most at risk of severe disease, hospitalisation and mortality being vaccinated first, in keeping with JCVI recommendations. However, vaccinations will not begin to show their effect until the end of February or March at the earliest. This is due to both the need to get a second dose of the vaccine and a two to three week lag time between positive cases and critical case admission. Therefore, these measures will be needed for at least six weeks. Whilst the Executive has agreed the continuation of education must be a priority, I wrote to the Education Minister over the weekend stressing the need for further urgent engagement. I do not believe that a return to school as normal in January is a sustainable position, and I made that clear in my letter. And my view on this matter is informed by advice from the CMO and Chief Scientific Advisor. We cannot disregard the evidence as it evolves and in order to express transmission of the virus both within schools and amongst the wider public at such a critical phase of the pandemic, all options should be considered. I understand that the public will be somewhat disappointed with the introduction of further restrictions over the Christmas holiday period. Whilst I know the majority of the public support these measures and want to see the virus transmission reduced, unfortunately we know all too well that some others will plan to continue with house parties or other festive gatherings, particularly over the new year. Extensive interaction in this unregulated environment presents a very high risk of increased transmission rates. That is why I believe the one-week period of additional restrictions from the 26th of December to the 2nd of January was also required. I hope the very fact these additional measures are required will send a firm message to the general public as to the seriousness of the situation we are in. Both compliance and enforcement are central to the success, or otherwise, of any package of measures. Last night, the Executive agreed to my ask that the COVID task force be mandated to urgently bring forward recommended actions to tomorrow's meeting in relation to enforcing the special restrictions between December 26th and January 2nd. 
and at the subsequent five weeks of further restrictions. It is my view that the task force should urgently consult with the PSNI on how policing can best contribute to compliance with the stay-at-home message, including ensuring visible policing on our roads and elsewhere in our, elsewhere in our community to underline to society the importance of the six weeks of regulations. This will necessarily include consideration of whether additional regulations are required. I would like to conclude, uh, Chair, by turning briefly to the emerging situation with regards to the variant strain which has been detected most prevalently in the south um, east of England. That should be. The variant was identified following proactive and enhanced epidemic, uh, epidemiological analysis in response to the recent increase in cases seen in Kent and London. Further analysis and investigation is ongoing in order to understand the characteristics and therefore potential impact of this variant. The epidemiological analysis concluded, uh, conducted to this point suggests that the variant may be more transmissible, but it is still too early to confirm that with certainty. However, there is currently no evidence to suggest that this variant is more likely to cause serious disease. There is currently no evidence that the strain will cause a more serious illness or that it will fail to respond to the vaccines we are currently delivering. I will, of course, continue to give this matter priority and update members as the situation evolves. While virus mutation is not uncommon, the rapidly spreading nature of the new strain is cause for serious concern. So I would urge the public to act on the assumption that it is already present in Northern Ireland and that the person that they pass in the street or stand next to in a queue may have it. We protect, our, we protect ourselves from this new strain through the same vital methods that we have used since the start of this pandemic, keeping our distance and significantly cutting our contacts with others, wearing a face covering and washing our hands. If you have symptoms, self-isolate and get a test, and testing will be available throughout the Christmas period. Chair, if we needed a reminder to redouble our efforts, this is it, because we underestimate this virus at our peril. Uh, thank you, Minister, for that statement. And, uh, I will now invite members to ask the Minister the questions. It will allow a period of around one hour for this. I remind members that uh, what was said at the start of the meeting, members must now preface their questions with a speech or a statement. There will be an opportunity for supplementary questions. Uh, whether a member can avail of that opportunity depends entirely on their ability to uh, ask relatively short questions. Uh, finally, I would encourage, also encourage the ministers to do likewise when they are responding to members' questions. The Chair of the Committee for Health, who I shall call first, has a little more latitude, as you will know, uh, than other members in asking his question. So I call on the Chairperson for the Health Committee, Colm Gillernew. Colm Gillernew. and I would like to thank the Minister for coming today to make this statement to the Assembly, to this ad hoc committee. And Minister, I acknowledged last week when you first indicated that there was a new and a worrying strain emerging in England, the concern around that issue, given that there were unknowns in relation to the transmissibility of it. That, those concerns appear to have firmed up in the sense that there is evidence emerging that this is indeed much more transmissible. Um, we have seen travel bans introduced in Scotland. We have seen many European Union countries introduce travel bans uh, in reaction to this. Minister, the World Health Organization advice from the outset in relation to dealing with this pandemic has been to move fast and to move effectively. We are an island with limited entry points. And if these are closed, that can reduce the spread of this virus. 
I'm very conscious of the situation with the hospitals that you have referred to in your statement, and I'm also very conscious that you ended the statement with a reminder that we need to redouble our efforts in dealing with this virus. So, Minister, given the decisive action taken by many EU governments and the government in the south of Ireland to restrict travel from Britain, what advice have you offered the executive and what actions are you proposing to protect our people and our health service from this new and reportedly more infectious strain of COVID-19, which has been spreading in the south of England? And I, I thank the, the chair for his, his continued support in pushing out the, the guidance in regards to how we combat this, this virus, no matter where the, where, what the variant is. In regards to the advice and, and the direction of travel taken by the executive, the, the member, I'm sure, is well aware that the executive met last night and after a lengthy discussion, um, we are seeking guidance uh, from the Attorney General as to what is actually possible, uh, if necessary. The 1967 Act, the, the Health Act, allows us to take action, uh, but I think the Attorney General made it clear that even to do that would take at least um, 48 hours. So what we are uh, reliant on uh, as an executive is in regards to the guidance that has been issued by the UK government in regards to anybody travelling from Tier 4. They are not to travel from Tier 4, they are to stay in it. Anybody travelling from one, Tiers 1, 2 and 3 were advised to stay local. So to me, local to Tiers 1, 2 and 3 in England does not mean travelling to Northern Ireland. So my guidance at this moment in time to anybody uh, considering travelling would be only to travel for essential purposes. There are a number of other considerations that we do have to take into consideration before we bring in uh, that travel ban. Uh, in regards to, I suppose, other guidance that has been put out from other countries, I am aware that Scotland has given, um, under regulation, advice to Scottish residents not to travel into England, but they cannot prevent uh, anyone travelling into Scotland at this moment in time. I have also asked officials this morning to just to see if there is anything we can do to strengthen our travel locator forms in regards to travel from Tier 4 or any individual who does ignore that advice not to leave Tier 4 and to stay at home within that, that is there anything more we could do in regards to that. Um, I, I spoke to, to one of the travel ministers uh, in, in HMG this morning in regards to that, and they are still working and talking to other international ministers in regards to where exactly uh, travel guidance does fall and what more can be done. Supplementary, Colin Gilderney. Minister. And, um, we are conscious a number of weeks ago there was a new strain of COVID-19 detected in Denmark. Scotland, England, Wales, the South and here all moved appropriately and quickly to stop travel from that region and country until such times as we could assess what was going on. It's my understanding, as you stated, that the, the, the regulations does allow for the preventing danger 25B of the Public Health Act 67 allows for preventing danger to public health from vessels, aircraft and or other conveyances arriving at any place. So, Minister, I'd asked what steps you're taking immediately in terms of your executive colleagues to, to, to put that in place, given that time is not on our side here. No, and, and as I said, you know, we are interacting with the Attorney General, who did actually attend uh, the executive meeting last night in regards to that. But I do notice you know, the, the, the member's own party colleague, I think it was Senator Boylan, um, in the Republic of Ireland on media had said that um, instead of banning flights, people should be monitored on arrival. So in balance to that, that's why I'm saying we were looking at how we could actually increase the strength of the travel locator form in regards to, to Tier 4. So the, the executive is engaged in regards to this. There are other considerations that have to be taken into the wider uh, decision-making process before it comes into 
a, a country ban or are banned from travel within the UK. Um, I think the executive has taken the appropriate steps as to make sure that they take that with the appropriate legal guidance and to make sure there are financial supports, if necessary, for any businesses that should be halted or any supply chains that should be disrupted. In regards to that, I think what is a, 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 an ex, an except, except, which is an except, exceptional sensitive time in regards to what we've seen in regards to lorries and supply chains backed up already in Dover, uh, in regards to food supplies and medicine supplies coming into Northern Ireland just at this point in time. I think the executive is right to take that balanced precautionary approach, always being mindful of the additional health measures and guidance that is in place for anyone entering Northern Ireland, uh, as well as the supports that are there. Call Palm Cameron. Thank you, Mr Speaker, and I thank the Minister for his statement to the House today. Obviously, the changes to the Christmas arrangements are deeply disappointing for very many. I do, however, understand and support these changes. Uh, that have been made. And as someone with family members within the health and social care system um, working, I understand that staffing pressures are at a very critical level. So I wanted to ask the Minister in around um, staffing. I've been made aware that um, staff have at times been moved from COVID to non-COVID, back to COVID, um, often within a single shift. And uh, those same staff members um, haven't been offered regular COVID testing or indeed haven't been told that they will be prioritised for the rollout of the um, COVID-19 vaccine. So I wanted to ask the Minister if he would give an assurance today that he'd be giving immediate priority to those staff members who are moving around from COVID to non-COVID in order to protect not just themselves and their families, but critically the patients within our hospital care system. You know, and I thank the member. I know the specific case um, serious is serious with me personally this morning. Is, is one thing I will give the, the deputy chair of the committee uh, recognition for is the number of issues that she does bring uh, to the attention of both myself and the department in regards to to actions and concerns that are being taken within our health healthcare system and its workers. But she can be assured, you know, the, the stresses and strains that our healthcare service is under, the workers are under, is exactly why we are taking these six-week interventions. In regards to the changes around Christmas, it was the approach the executive took. Rather than just simply going from five days down to one, that we allowed that balance of an additional day for specifically like members uh, of our healthcare family that the member refers to, who maybe were on shift on Christmas Day and had planned to spend another day over the, the festive period with their family. So that's why we, we adopted that, that leniency uh, and that understanding last night, because it is a support that is necessary. In regards to, to the vaccine programme uh, and where healthcare staff actually fall in that, the member is aware they are up in, in regards to the high priorities. I can report to the member that as of close of play on Saturday night, uh, we were in the region of 14,300 uh, vaccines had been deployed uh, across Northern Ireland. Nearly half of our care home sector, half of our care homes have been done, over 40% of our care home residents had also been done as well. So the next phase is moving into our health care workers as well. Uh, I'm aware there's an announcement being made today in regards to trusts and where and how staff uh, can actually access those. It will be in a bookable appointment system because one thing we cannot avoid to do with this vaccine is actually waste it. Uh, and one of the steps um, that has been taken in the, in the early interim is while we were doing our care homes and the care home residents and care home staff 
we also have a number of healthcare workers on standby, so that when the vaccination team comes to an end of its shift, if it still has a number of vaccines that haven't been utilised, those healthcare workers are called in, so we get maximum effect of any vaccine that has been has been drawn up and has been delivered, so that we make sure there is as little wastage of what is a very vital and precious resource as is possible. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and I thank the Minister for his answers there. Um, I, I would like to see greater um, clarity and assurance that those staff members will be treated with very much um, urgent priority in terms of receiving this vaccine in order to protect patients, not just themselves. Um, Minister, just in around uh, the rest of the restrictions, I would, would, would welcome some assurance now today for carers and for um, childcare and indeed for children of separated um, parents that they will not be restricted in their movements and they will still be able to avail of those critical bubbles during um, the uh, lockdown which is up upon us. You know, and, and the member does, does raise again another very uh, valid point in regards to the children of separated uh, parents that was laid out and that those protections and guidance uh, were actually laid out during the first phase and the first the first wave of the pandemic because we realised it was necessary to do uh, to make sure that children weren't penalised in any regard or penalised any further due to any outworkings of this pandemic. So that's already done, that's already there, but I'm, I'm happy to supply the member with, with access to that guidance if she still needs it or share it with the, with the committee as a whole, Chair. Nicole Cara Hunter. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and I thank the Minister uh, for his statement and answering questions so far. But can I relay to the Minister the deep frustration uh, and how exasperated people feel uh, with some of the decisions being made to tackle this crisis, especially on air travel? I too share concerns on flights uh, incoming to the north, and we've seen decisions made in London, Cardiff, uh, and Edinburgh, Edinburgh around um, you know the new COVID variant. But we're standing here today with new action. Can I ask the Minister what immediate action he can announce today um, that will assure us all that there will be beds free in our hospitals uh, in January to ensure that non-COVID health issues such as uh, cancer can be treated in a timely manner should we see another surge uh, in January? Thank you. Uh, Exactly for that reason that we're here today adding these additional six weeks um, of advanced restrictions is to take the pressure off our hospital system who are currently coping on a daily basis, between four and five hundred uh, COVID patients, COVID patients who need need support, COVID patients who are in hospital because of a clinical diagnosis. But what we cannot do is cut our staff in two so that they are supporting COVID COVID patients and non-COVID patients at the same time. We do not have the access within our capacity to enable to do this. So, how we ensure that there are those beds available for non-COVID patients in January? is actually by reducing the spread of this virus here and now. So what I would also say uh, to members and to members of the public listening, these regulations or these restrictions come in on the 26th of December. You don't have to wait till then. If you can cut your number of contacts today, tomorrow uh, and leading into next week, it will have a positive effect. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and, and I thank you, Minister, uh, for your detailed answer. Uh, understandably, many feel somewhat confused um, around the ever-changing regulations. What actions um, will the Minister take in ensuring that there is a clear, uh, concise information to the public, whether it be media, online, or on TV? Thank you. And again, I, I thank the member uh, again because it is a valid point in regards to, to changing messages. Uh, and I suppose with the duration of this six-week. 
uh, intervention that it should allow that message to be stronger and more sustained. Um, that messaging will be undertaken by the Executive Information Service that has already started in regards to social media input. By us being here today making this statement by the media announcements, um, press interviews that have been carried out by myself, by the First and Deputy First Minister uh, who are in the Chamber today, and I appreciate their support in regards to, to making this statement. Uh, you know, the more we can get this message through to people in the lead-up uh, to actually when it comes in to effect on the 26th of December, the more effective it will be. Because I still believe the majority of people in Northern Ireland do the right thing. And when they hear what we are asking them to do, they want to comply because they know the value uh, that these restrictions bring. They also know the cost that they bring, and they also know that we don't do this lightly. But we're doing it, in, in my opinion, and I, I think in the executive's opinion, we're doing it for the right reasons, and that's to protect our health service. Nicole Allen Chambers. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, Minister, given the speculation around a travel ban between GB and Northern Ireland, would the Minister agree that we would have to keep on to review such a restriction between North and South as well as East West, especially given the recently reported significant increases in cases in the Republic of Ireland? I, th I thank the member for, for his point, and I think it is, it is a valid one. I, I had a, a telephone conversation with my, my counterpart in the Republic of Ireland uh, yesterday evening um, after they had made their announcement, and one of the concerns that, that he was sharing that in certain areas of the Republic of Ireland there is an increase uh, in cases down there, and I think it's, it has taken them by, by somewhat of a surprise just in regards to the speed that it is actually increasing. In, in certain areas, so it's something that we have to keep an eye on. It's something that they are keeping an eye on, and it's welcome that uh, my officials and, and Stephen Dolney's officials are in regular contact. And in fact, our chief medical officers are meeting later today to have that conversation. Alan Chambers, supplementary. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Thank you for that, Minister. And Minister, could I ask you uh, to comment on the advisability? of individual and family travel at this time, even within Northern Ireland? Um, and what I would say, say to anyone who is considering travel, if it's not essential, if it's not necessary, please don't. Because this virus does not spread on its own. We spread it. People spread it. So the, the less you travel, the fewer contacts you have, the less opportunity this virus has to spread. I call Paula Bradshaw. Um, thank you, Mr. Speaker, and thank you, Minister, for your statement. Minister, I welcome this morning the launch of your consultation into the mental health strategy. Um, and we're, we're now going into six weeks lockdown, and obviously it affects people's mental health, but it also affects people's physical health. And we're now probably approaching about a year that people have had restricted um, mobility. Given um, the long-term impact on people's health, physical health in terms of stroke, heart disease, cancer, etc., from lack of physical activity. Are you pulling together a long-term physical health strategy? And if so, are you doing that in collaboration with the Department for Communities? Thank you. Um, I thank the, the member. One of the other things that she has often asked for and raised in this chamber is the effects of long COVID. And again, no nice guidance is currently looking at that as a condition in its own and what other steps has to be, have to be taken in regards to support individuals uh, who are suffering or diagnosed uh, with long COVID. Uh, physical activity seems to be an indicator that uh, on a recovery path, 
uh, for someone who has long COVID is actually worthwhile and is actually going to be one of the steps that is recommended along with physiotherapy and all the other supports from our allied health professionals. In regards to specifically um, bringing forward that physical activity uh, consultation, it's not something that's currently on uh, my short-term radar, as I'm sure the members is, is aware as to where we are uh, working with COVID, but I thank her for acknowledging the fact that we have launched the mental health strategy uh, today as well, because I've always been clear, and this House has always been clear, um, of the support that we need to give to that sector and what we need to do in the long term for a 10-year plan to make sure that we can get Northern Ireland into a better place in regards to mental health and supporting people uh, who need that support. Paula Bradshaw, supplementary. Thank you for your response, um, Minister, and I hope you do take on board that sort of suggestion for a long-term physical health strategy. But my supplementary relates to um, a few weeks ago, I think it was, you mentioned that 12.5 million was going to be set aside for the independent sector for elective care um, in the next financial year. Could you please provide us with an update on those discussions? Thank you. I don't have a specific uh, with me today on, on how that is, but it's one of the things that we did in the first wave, was to make sure that we can utilise as much of the independent sector as we possibly can to make sure we, we get as many of our patients who need to be seen and who need procedures, surgeries, diagnoses uh, done as quickly, quickly and effectively as possible. And I've always been clear if that involves bringing in the independent sector, we would do that. We've set that in motion again. We are using it, and we've had very good negotiations and discussions with them, not during the, just during the first wave, but also the intermediate period and into this second wave as well, because their assistance um, is crucial and is vital in how we tackle our waiting lists. Call Gordon Dunn. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and I thank the Minister for his statement. I think we all recognise the difficult job you're doing and have continued to do through this terrible pandemic. Can the Minister advise, I suppose, advise the public out there why the Nightingale facilities at the City Hospital and the Matter Hospitals are not being fully utilised as aware, which we understand very successfully in the early stages of this pandemic? And is it a matter of utilising the local resources in the local hospitals rather than bringing them into the Nightingale facilities? No, and, and again, the, the member makes a point that is often asked, and I think it's, it's welcome that I get the chance to, to clarify that. The Matter Hospital was redesignated as a COVID-specific um, hospital uh, not outside the Nightingale, so it was for the Belfast Trust area. And if the member looks to our, our dashboard daily, it sets at 100% because of the number of people and patients that's currently supporting. In regards to the Nightingale, the ICU Nightingale, that the, the tower block uh, that was set up to be established as a regional facility should the pressures come uh, at any wave in regards to our intensive care uh, capacity. It was set up as a regional facility when pressures came uh, on our local ICU capacities across all our sectors when they reached a critical tipping point. Uh, we activated it uh, in the first wave, it was stood down then, we have reactivated it uh, in the second wave, but what we have actually seen over the past number of, of weeks is our ICU need uh, set around 32 for, for uh, COVID patients and another usually in and around 60 to, to 70 depending on um, all our operational needs, should that be RTA, should it be follow up from operations. Uh, so the regional facility of the Nightingale at the Tower was specifically designed uh, to take regional pressures uh, for COVID patients who required that ICU intervention. 
at this minute in time we haven't had to activate, we're not using it. We also opened the, the second Nightingale uh, facility out at White Abbey, which is a rehabilitation uh, unit, which actually takes patients uh, on their transfer rather than having to look for a private care home or a care home for them to go between hospital and returning to their own residence as a facility where they can go for a two-week intensive intervention uh, as a nurse-led facility supported by allied health professionals so they get the full rehabilitation procedures and support that they need that allows them to return home. So it allows a flow of patients out of hospital into that Nightingale and then back to the capacity and again that's that, that has been, it has been started and it will be increased over the next, next few weeks in regards to the accessibility of staff, but we do need the staff to be able to take it uh, to further stages to support further patients. But the work that the Northern Trust uh, were able to complete to get it up and running in a very short period of time was commendable. Gordon Dunn, supplementary. Thanks, Speaker, and thank the Minister for his detailed answer. I think we, we all recognise the success of the Nightgain facilities. And uh, we do appreciate the difficulty in getting the balance right. And do you still feel that getting the balance is, is a, an ongoing challenge, as we all are made very much aware of the other issues out there, in, including cancer and other infectious diseases that people uh, are taken down very quickly with and need to be addressed urgently? No, and I, I think it's a, it's a point of, of, I've made um, often here. You know, the, the fewer the fewer COVID cases that we have, the more I was going to say normal business. Normal isn't the right word. The more routine business that our health service uh, usually does wants to do, uh, we can get on with. So the more effective this six-week intervention is, the more of those people we can get urgently back into our our, our health service to get them seen and to get them sorted as well. One of the differences that we have seen between the first wave and this wave is the number of normal procedures, urgent and red flag procedures uh, that we are still maintaining and still completing uh, in comparison to the first wave. So the, you know, the creation of the, the elective surgery unit in Lagan Valley, the utilisation of the South West Acute Hospital uh, to make sure that we're using the entirety of our, our footprint of a resource to support as many patients as possible. So I think there, there was always that perception in the past that any review in Northern Ireland uh, would lead to the closure of facilities. I think what we're seeing now is, is the better utilisation of the facilities that we have because we need every square foot of, of our hospital footprint that we currently have and we could use more, but what we need more of is actually our healthcare staff and professionals to support that unit. Thank you. I thank the Minister for his, his answer so far. I wonder could he tell us uh, what assessments the CMO and CSA uh, have made in regard to travel from Britain in the light of this new variant strain uh, of, of the virus? And I ask that question in the context of information I received this morning from someone in the airline industry. A flight left Belfast yesterday with 30 passengers was due to bring 80 back from Heathrow and came back with 160. People who couldn't get flown uh, to Dublin had rebooked their flights. And every flight this week into, into the north here is going to be bunged in the same way. So I, I wonder what the assessment is on all of that. Yeah, and I, I, I thank the member um, for his point. And, and again, it comes down to, to regards of, of the specific and, and the variant. 
which we are seeing is now spread and widespread in parts of England in regards to especially um, the South East. Um, it's also, as we do know, um, the pressures that are there. So in regards to advice and guidance that the CMO and CSA gave, they provided that to, to the executive last night uh, in regard to the relative risk to travellers coming from the UK. Uh, currently, from what we're seeing from our contact tracing service, is out of the 6,000 new cases that we've had in the last two weeks, uh, 23 reported that they had actually travelled uh, from the rest of the UK. So there is a small number uh, of those. If the new variant was to be present, it would even be a smaller number of those 23 as well. So in regards to, to that advice, uh, they provided it to the executive last night. We are engaging um, with the Attorney General as to see what can be done or what is necessary to do, but that will be a decision um, for the executive to make. Patrick, would, would the minister not agree with me and with Mike Rand, the head of the World Health Organization, that the most important thing in dealing with this pandemic is to act with speed and to act decisively? And it seems at the minute, and, and some people are saying, that the refusal to introduce any sort of travel ban appears to be dithering and delaying, and that it's not a sustainable position going forward. And again, the, the member makes his point, but I think in some of the earlier answers when I spoke about the guidance is there for anybody travelling out of Tier 4 uh, and what we're look, currently looking at in regards to the passenger locator forms. When he talks about the guidance that can be given, and, and again, especially I know the concern he's raising is about people, uh, residents from the Republic of Ireland here now using Belfast or Londonderry point, uh, airports as a point of entry. Uh, to the island. I think it was unfortunate that the Irish government made the decision they did without any interaction or heads up to ourselves that that's what they were going to do. I noticed afterwards there was uh, statements that they would, would engage. Um, I'm not sure what level of engagement has, has been had, but I've also known in the past that we've been very clear that if, if we want to, to act together and coordinate a response, it's better that we actually talk to each other before making decisions like that because it allows us to express not our just our concerns, but also how we could possibly look towards common approaches rather than just one moving before the other. Call Robin Newton. Okay, Mr. Speaker, um, can I thank the Minister for his uh, statement this morning? Minister, you have made the, the, the point within your remarks about uh, community responsibility. And uh, specifically within your speech, you refer to the case that associated levels of community transmission would inevitably result in further significant increase in outbreaks in care homes among extremely vulnerable older people, as was experienced in the first wave, which will result in excessive deaths in this population. Could I ask the Minister what lessons have been learned from the first wave, and are there any additional measures that you're going to take in this situation within our car homes specifically? 
No, and I think what we saw in, in the first wave was the, the impact that we saw on our care homes. Um, during that period of time, our chief nursing officer led a rapid learning initiative, uh, engaging with care home residents, the care home sector, and the trusts who supported the care homes during the first pandemics in regards to what more could uh, be done. Uh, we have introduced the weekly testing of staff and the regular testing of residents as well. And you know, to give them, uh, the member a perspective, uh, we've, uh, on Friday we had 82 care homes who were being designated as a positive outbreak. Now that means there's more than two, uh, either residents or staff, who have tested positive. Of those <coughs> 82, um, 44 were asymptomatic, so they were actually cases that have been picked up. Uh, by our regular testing program, so the difference being, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, is by the introduction of that program, we are detecting positive cases in care homes earlier, so that those members of staff can be self-isolated, those residents can be self-isolated before we see further outbreaks actually in the homes um, as well. And I think one of the biggest advantages that we've seen uh, in comparison to the first wave uh, and now is actually our vaccination program. And that's what we'll really see if you know that increased protection of the residents and the staff within those care homes. And as I said to an earlier answer, you know, as of close of play um, on Saturday night, we had the region of 50% um, of our care homes uh, vaccinated, over 40% of our residents. The Joint Committee of Vaccination and Immunisation specified that particular cohort as a priority, and that's where we have focused. I call John O'Dowd. Sorry, sorry. Sorry, Robin Newton, supplementary. Thank, thank, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, I thank the Minister for his very detailed uh, uh, answer and greatly appreciate it. In terms of the care homes, residents, and staffs, staff members that have been vaccinated and the 50% mark, is that, the Minister confirm, is that 50% of staff care homes across the province or is it 50% of specific care homes within a sort of geographical area? Um, I, I thank the member for recognising the detailed answer by giving me a more detailed question. Um, it is 50% of our care homes across all five of, of our trusts um, because it is the programme that we have run out across the entirety of Northern Ireland. Um, I, I have numbers here somewhere which I will come back to in a, in a further answer if I can find them for, for the member, but <coughs> it is 50 per cent of our care homes and it is in the region of over 40 per cent of residents have received their first inoculation plus an additional number of staff as well. So we focus specifically on that cohort, on that sector, as recommended by the Joint Committee of vaccination and immunisation, as has been detailed as to their priority list. Uh, they designated that priority list in, in degree of vulnerability and of age, so that is why they, they designated care home residents and staff in that first cohort. <coughs> call John O'Dowd. Uh, Minister, you ended your speech by saying, if we ever needed a reminder to redouble our efforts, this is it. We underestimate this virus on our pearl. Minister, the restrictions you have outlined today uh, will mean that our health service might cope over Christmas. If the new variant spreads from the south of England, 
our health service won't cope over Christmas and into the new year. When will you be in a position to bring definitive health advice to the executive in relation to flights from Britain? As, as I think, as I said to, to an earlier answer, you know, we, we had quite a detailed conversation at the executive last night. Um, I was asked to go and speak with the Attorney General as to the specifics of the legality uh, of utilisation of the 67 Act, how long it will take to actually bring into to place and actually use here in Northern Ireland. But I think I've been very clear here today in regards to messaging. You know, tier 4 stands alone within, within England. You should not leave your home if you're in Tier 4. So you should not be travelling to Northern Ireland. You shouldn't be travelling anywhere if you're in Tier 4. The advice to, in levels 1 to 3 is stay local. Getting on a plane to come to Northern Ireland is not local travel. So people should not be doing it. That's the advice. That's the guidance we're giving at the minute. And until we get the clear direction as to how or if we change that in regulation, uh, that's when the executive will take the decision as well. Because it is a cross-cutting issue. It, it affects... Uh, infrastructure, it affects economy and it affects uh, our finance as well as to how we would have to support uh, those commerce, uh, those, those commercial interests and also the airports and the port authorities as well. John supplementary. Thank you, Minister. Minister, um, let's, let me be clear. I have no desire, nor does my party have any desire, to separate families at Christmas. I don't care where they're travelling from. There's constituents of yours, constituents of mine, who are in England now, who quite rightly want to come home to their loved ones. And so what we're talking about is impeding on families' lives and uh, creating emotional hardship over Christmas. So we're not taking this lightly or gently. We do not want to restrict people's movements. But if this new variant spreads, our health service could collapse without wishing to sound alarmist. So, Minister, there's times in politics when you have to act and seek forgiveness later. Surely it's time to act. And, and I say to the member again, and the member knows well in regards to working within a five-party executive what is doable and what isn't doable. In regards to the advice that we have given, we, we have given that advice in regards to, to where we see this variant and the pressure it may come. And we've also been clear that it may already be here in a small numbers. It may already be in the Republic of Ireland as well when we look to the increases that we're actually seeing down there as well. And it's a conversation that will be ongoing and I'll bring that, recommend, that advice and recommendations to the executive as soon as we were able to get that interaction with the Attorney General. Call Justin McNulty. Minister, I do not envy your job. Minister, you will be aware there is a sense of a surge in anxiety levels out there, and one major area of concern is in schools. Principals, teachers, parents are really concerned about the safety of their families. You referenced the recognition that there needs to be a relook at how schools will start in January. They cannot continue as normal. Can you give us some information around vaccinations, Minister, and how they will be rolled out in schools, prioritising teachers and school staff to enable the return to normality in schools as soon as possible, as soon as it's safely possible? Um, again, I thank the member for, for his question. In regards to the prioritisation of vaccines, uh, we do follow and we will be following um, the guidance of the Joint Committee of Vaccine and Immunisation, who have set out the criteria already uh, as to who and when gets that vaccine. Um, if teachers fall into certain categories, certain brackets, they will get it um, as they meet the criteria. There is no, I, there is no intention to deviate away from the guidance that we've received from JVCI, because I'm sure, as the member well aware, once uh, we move away from that criteria, 
pressures then come from other sectors, other individuals. And then uh, I think the last thing that we want to do is have a vaccine prioritisation schedule that's decided uh, by politicians or by vote in this House. So that's why I'll take the guidance from the Joint Committee on Vaccine and Immunisations, as will all my other colleagues, health ministers uh, across the United Kingdom. Just McNulty, supplementary. Minister, what is your assessment of the damage to the public message of the ongoing tit-for-tat and blame game between the parties of the First Ministers and the First Ministers over recent weeks and the behaviours of their parties? I see uh, today we have a scramble to introduce a travel ban to stop Irish people getting home. There was no such scramble to introduce a travel ban earlier in the year when there was travel from all over to a funeral. The member speaks of, you know, of, of the, the political uh, tit-for-tat. Uh, I think you know me well enough since I've taken up this post. That's not something I've engaged in, nor will I. Call Steve Egan. And thank the Minister very much indeed for his uh, comments so far on coming to the House for this ad hoc committee. Um, the United Kingdom has identified the new strain of COVID through its global leadership in genomics. Um, have you, through your North-South links, been able to see if the Republic of Ireland has been able to genomically sequence any of the sort of the COVID increases, and especially, and I noticed the First Minister has just left us, reported this morning that the rate in the Irish Republic is significantly above one. I, I thank the member um, in regards to the genomics and how we were able to, to be part of this. Um, my understanding is that through COB UK, which is the, uh, the gen genomics unit that was set up uh, at the very early onset uh, and outbreak of COVID and specifically to genotyping and seeing if there was different uh, strains and different variations. Up to 10 per cent at times of samples uh, are actually sent to that genotyping unit to see if there are uh, new strains or variants uh, developing. Uh, my understanding is that the, the current um, format or approach in the Republic of Ireland is in regards to 1 per cent of samples. So the UK was very deliberate and specific and their establishment of the creation of COG UK um, to, to enable them to identify early onset of different variants and variations to make sure that we were aware as early as possible. So in regards to the specific, in regards to the, the increases um, in the Republic of Ireland, I think that is well documented and something that actually uh, the Minister of Health from the Republic of Ireland and I discussed last night. And thank you very much indeed. And Minister, you talked earlier on about the flow of information, and to deal with this COVID pandemic, the flow of information is going to be absolutely critical. Are you content with the flow of information you're having, particularly on a north-south basis? Um, again, the member, I, I think I've said a number of times to you, know, I spoke to Stephen Donnelly last night, there was a north-south ministerial council meeting on Friday where these, these issues were raised in regards to the ongoing conversations between my officials and uh, the health officials in the Republic of Ireland. That is continual. It's near enough. If not daily, it's, it's approaching it in regards to both CMO level and our contact tracing and public health agencies as well and how they, how they interact. So the, the, the flow of information is there. Uh, could it be better? Certainly. Um, I made a comment earlier on how it would have been helpful if we had had, had notification of the, the intention to, to reduce flights. Uh, it would also be helpful if we could get a res resolution as to the sharing of data on travel locator forms of anyone, or even on an international basis, arriving into the Republic of Ireland and then travelling into Northern Ireland. That issue is still extant and hasn't been resolved, even though it was raised again 
uh, by the First Minister at the North-South Ministerial Council meeting on Friday. Call Christopher Stalford. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, Mr. Speaker, Sir, Dr. Shamas Ladhani, a Public Health England consultant epidemiologist, recently stated regarding school closures. It's not just about children's education, it's about their growth, it's about their upbringing, it's about their social skills, it's about interacting with others, it's about their, their mental health, it's about making sure they get fed properly and that they have access to social services. What we do know is that it's just so important that we keep children in school. Would the Minister agree with me that it should be a government priority to keep schools open for precisely the reasons that Dr Ladhani has out outlined? Um, I, I and I'm sure the members waiting in anticipation for the Minister of Education statement uh, directly following this. Uh, and as I said, even in my opening statement uh, and comments, the executive has set education as a priority. But what we have to do is also make sure that that is a safe environment to learn as well. And it also has to be the environment that supports and nurtures our children to the full potential of their development. Thank you, sir. In a recent answer the Minister provided to me, it was confirmed that in the Belfast Trust, 1,006 cancer appointments have been cancelled, along with 174 cardiac appointments. What assessment has the Department made of the total number of people who will die because they are refused access to treatment? Um, I, I don't want, um, I suppose, to, to use that emotive language, but we do know that it is challenging. In regards, and I have said this on a number of occasions, in this House, um, the health service has been underinvested and underfunded for the past 10 years. We are now struggling trying to run three health services. Bengoa was very clear that we would have to run a transformation service alongside a current health service to get us into the place that we needed to be. That would have been preferably the, the work that I would have been doing since taking up office in January. What we are currently doing is running a health service to meet the needs of as many of our population as we can, plus running the transformation service that we already see, and as I say, you know, that's developed in regards to the Lagan Valley uh, Day Procedures Unit, what we're doing now in the South West Area Hospital, but it's also necessary to support the COVID patients that we have as well. I cannot create, I cannot knit nurses overnight. Our biggest pressures are our staff, our most valuable resource is our staff. So it's about the investment in that. In the long term, I wish we were in a better place in regards to what we could be doing on a day-to-day -day basis, but unfortunately we're not. So we are prioritising. We're re we've broken down many silos that existed previously in the health service, and we're making those changes, like I explained, you know, Lagan Valley, uh, the SWA, what we're doing in day orthopaedics as well. So there's changes that are, are addressing the need, uh, the utilisation of the independent sector. We're doing as much as we physically possibly can. Uh, to address those needs. Call Caramullen. and I also thank the Minister for bringing this statement to the House today. Minister, can I ask what engagements you or, and your officials had with the Education Minister and Health Department on the reopening of schools and the conduct of exams before the Education Minister made his announcement on Friday? And is his announcement reflective of the discussions had? Um, and, and I think one um, one of the things, and the member will know me well, that I, I don't divulge conversations that I've had uh, any, anywhere else or, or in the public. In regards to the ongoing um, discussions between ourselves on education, they have been intense. The CMO, uh, CSA have been meeting and interacting. 
with education officials uh, on a regular basis. Uh, the Education Minister will provide, uh, I think, the update of the outworkings later in his statement. Um, uh, and I think, as I said in my statement, uh, in the opening statement, I don't believe we can go back to school as normal. I think we have to put in additional measures. I think we can put in additional measures, and we've done that through working with uh, the Department and Minister of Education to make sure that there can be more appropriate steps, proportionate steps, taken to provide the surety and the safety of our pupils uh, and the staff working in the schools. Carmel, supplementary. Thank the Minister for his answer, and I also agree with the Minister that our schools need to be safe. Um, and sustainable to, to reopen. Uh, but I would ask if you could give us some information around the medical and scientific advice that has been given to the Education Minister. Um, and it comes, I think, one of the things that we've always done, uh, and uh, I'm not sure well, the member may not be aware of it, but our ministerial colleagues will, uh, that in regards to a paper that we produced uh, for non-pharmaceutical interventions back towards the end of September, had a number of recommendations into how we could support education, what steps could be taken. There's additional information and guidance has come forward through SAGE uh, in regards to the support measures uh, and additional actions that can be taken within school settings to reduce risk. Uh, those have all been shared with the Minister of Education on any advice or guidance that he's needed or as department officials have needed on those papers we have been able to provide and to provide clarity and support as to what those actually mean in a practical sense. Call Stuart Dixon. Thank you very much, uh, Mr Speaker. Minister, it would be remiss of me not today, uh, today not to uh, remark on the Herculean efforts that both you and your uh, staff in the Department of Health and all those that are involved in health have done uh, dealing with this pandemic. Minister, given the scenes outside Antrimaria Hospital last week, can you outline for the House today uh, what additional measures uh, you are taking to support the Northern Ireland Ambulance Service, bearing in mind that it takes one hour to turn an ambulance around uh, post a patient being in that ambulance? Yeah. You know, um no, I, I personally thank the member for his comments, um, and I know they're heartfelt when he makes them because he doesn't say things. He doesn't pass comments uh, and um, give that sort of statement lightly in the house because I know the member well enough. Uh, but in regards to the pressures that we saw outside onto Mary Hospital, it was due to the pressures that were seen internally in the hospital, and um, we've always known, you know, that flow of patient from emergency department to bed. Uh, or even to discharge has been a challenge and continues to be a challenge. But at that point in time, you know, we'd say the, the horrific scene of 17 ambulances queued up outside in the region of 30, I think it was 34 patients waiting to move from ED into the hospital. But also in the Andromeda Hospital at that point in time, we had over 100 uh, COVID patients receiving necessary clinical advised support. So when you take, and I don't mean to be crib, but when you take the mathematics of that, it shows the pressure that COVID is adding to an already uh, under-resourced, struggling uh, health service, one that wants to do its best and one that continue to try to do its best. Um, but I'm sure the member will be aware that over the past few nights we've uh, utilised our memorandum of understanding with the ambulance service from the Republic of Ireland, one that has been there, one that is beneficial and one that has been utilised in the past. We used it uh, and it has supplied that additional support uh, when we need it. But it's like many other memorandums of understanding that we have in regards to the cancer services in Elton the Galvin, the coronary services for the North West. 
uh, and also in regards now to um, a, a memorandum of understanding that has been signed by the Beaumont Hospital in the Republic of Ireland and the Belfast Health Trust in regards to live kidney transplant donations as well, where our surgeons will be able to provide that service for them. So these memorandum of understanding are many between our health service and the health service in the Republic of Ireland, and we often utilise them without the, the media attention uh, that, was, that has been brought over the past few days, and we thank them for the support that they have provided at a critical juncture. Thank you very much, and thank you, Minister, for your answer. Minister, I would appreciate that there are many other uh, healthcare workers that are under extreme pressure at this point in time, particularly our district nurses, as they are involved in the rollout of the vaccine. What efforts are you giving to support them in relation to the pressures of having to deliver the vaccine into the community? Um, you know, and I think the, the member points out to, to one of the I suppose the successes of our vaccine programme, that it is such a multidisciplinary team uh, that are delivering them based you know, on working with, uh, from, uh, within our trusts, uh, supported by pharmacy colleagues, district nursing colleagues, nursing colleagues, uh, doctors when, when necessary, uh, to make sure we get maximum impact from that vaccine programme. Those supports are there. The anybody uh, who is a vaccinator received the vaccine first as a, pri as a priority. Uh, and they're also, if any, like any member of staff across our health and social care family, needs that psychological support. Uh, that was something that was developed in the first wave, still is there and still is maintained um, to use and is available for support uh, for those families. And with your indulgence, Chair, I'll go back and you would find the page at some point. Uh, as of close of play um, on the 19th of December, uh, we had vaccinated 243, which is approximately 50% of our care homes, uh, just shy of 6,000 residents, uh, which is approximately 40% of our care home residents, and over 7,000 uh, care home staff, and on addition of that, with over 1,400 health and social care staff vaccinated as well. So that included our vaccinators and those who were there at the end. So I, I told the member once I found them, the numbers would come back to him, and I used the the other members' question to give that answer. Minister, why hasn't more been done to increase our baseline critical care capacity outside of our COVID surge planning, uh, like has been done in the Republic and other European countries? And if the issue is workforce capacity, then why doesn't this mean that our surge capacity is just an imaginary number? That is impossible to achieve due to the lack of properly trained staff. Um, I, I honestly don't believe the member meant that question in the tone or tenure it was asked, um, because I do think if the inference was taken from that question, uh, it could be seen as undermining the critical work that has been done in our ICU capacity. So when it comes to being able to go up to our surge numbers in the, the ICU beds, uh, that took a Herculean. Uh, effort from very dedicated, under-pressured staff. So it's not an imaginary number. It's not a number that's simply uh, on paper. And as I think, as I said, to, in response to an earlier answer, when it comes to that surge capacity in ICU, it's there. Um, it's done at extreme and under intense pressure. It involves relocating uh, ICU nurses and anaesthetists from across the province 
uh, into the, the tower block at the Ulster in regards to the Nightingale facility. Uh, in regards to our baseline of ICU beds, they've said around the assembly mark, that's what we have funded. Uh, all the other capacity comes through surge planning, and that means about the relocation and centralisation of staff. It also means the, the increase, and, and the most challenging point that comes is the increase in uh, ICU nurse ratio to patient, which is recommended at 1.1, but in occasions when we move to surge capacity, that ratio has actually moved from one ICU nurse to two patients, supported by other healthcare professionals and staff. So the surge capacity is brought about by placing an already pressurised staff under more pressure, and that's how we're able to meet that demand. In the longer term, how we increase that footprint of ICU beds, which are currently funded at 70, is by investing long term in ICU nurses who are a, a, critical, uh, a critical commodity within our, our health care service. They take additional training, years of additional training, to enable them to reach that grade, and it's something that we will uh, and are investing in for the future because we know the critical um, supply and care that they actually bring. Thank you. Uh, Minister, um, I have the reason for asking the question is like yourself. I do admire the great work which has been done by our front line. But Minister, I noticed that you have a plan in the surge capacity for 286 beds. And this is why I asked the question, because for me it, it is confusing. All of the trusts combined make available 80 to 120 every day since mid-October, and this is the real capacity within our system. And so in December, the capacity was the same this December as it was last December. Do you agree with me on that, Minister? I think the member is actually confusing what he is reading. How we move from that capacity to the 280 beds is, as I have said, we increase uh, the ratio of ICU nurse to patient. When we are sitting at those numbers, that is a one-to-one -one ratio. To go up to that capacity, we have to push our ICU nurses further by increasing the ratio of patients that they have to look after. That is a decision that was supported by the Royal College and the Nursing and Midwifery Council to allow us to do that. Uh, it's not something that we do lightly. So that's, that capacity within ICU is not always there because it's there in the extremes rather than the norm. Well, Rachel Woods. Mr Speaker, and I thank the Minister for his statement today and the work um, that is continuing to be done. Can I ask about those who were shielding previously? Is the Minister minded to issue updated instruction and guidance to vulnerable people, especially in light of this new strain? Um, the, the, the last time I was in the House, um, I did. I would provide, said I would provide an update. The shielding group, uh, the shielding advisory group, met yesterday, and that updated guidance uh, will be issued, if not later today, tomorrow, in regards to what that specific group of individuals should be doing. Uh, what I will say, although to the member, is in the past, each uh, anybody who was advised to shield uh, received individual letters. At this point in time, that will not be possible. Uh, so the shielding advice will be targeted specifically to who those are clinically extremely vulnerable because I have seen through the progression of this pandemic that that is the group that needs that additional advice and support. So that additional guidance uh, will be issued, if not later today, tomorrow, in regards to coming from a letter from our CMO or the Deputy CMO. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Thank you, Minister. Can I ask about the enforcement of these new restrictions? In the statement, you said that visible policing on our roads and elsewhere in our community would be consulted on, and if necessary, could include consideration of whether additional regulations are required. What other regulations are being considered? 
Um, at this moment in time, we're, we're finalising the regulations that are necessary to bring into to action uh, what we want to see coming forward from the 26th of December. So those, all, those regulations are all under consideration. As I said in my opening statement, uh, the First and Deputy First Minister announced a, a COVID task force which would bring uh, together departmental officials under the the chair of the new head of the, the civil service to make sure that we're getting a collaborative approach. Uh, so I've asked that they look um, specifically at what further regulations we need between the 26th of December to the 2nd of January to make sure that we get maximum uh, compliance and benefit out of that extended period, which will involve the curfew from 8pm at night to 6am in the morning. I move to Gemma Allister. Thank you. The Minister said that a return to schools as was is not sustainable. But of course, it's not the only thing that the Minister in times past has described as not sustainable. On the 14th of October, he said a cycle of lockdowns is not uh, feasible. Yet here we go again. Though the latest lockdown failed, according to the Minister, does the Minister not acknowledge that such fluctuations undermine confidence among the public that the Executive knows what it's doing? Last week we were told five-day Christmas. Last night we were told a one-day Christmas. Surely the Executive needs to get some consistency to its approach. But returning to the question of schools, very disappointed by the answer he gave Mr McNulty. If we are to get schools sustainable, do we not need staff to be vaccinated as a priority? And though he says he won't intervene with the Joint Committee's recommendations, will he not at least make recommendations to the Joint Committee that they should prioritise staff and teachers for vaccination? Um, I, I, I thank the member. And if only um, this virus were as predictable or as compliant that it would allow for that forward look of weeks and days actually to be made in regards to how we manage uh, our response to it. In regards to, to the cycle of, of lockdowns, um, I did say that. I maintain it. Because oh, the only thing, but unfortunately the only thing that we know that works in managing and reducing the transmission of this virus is the procedures that we have to take. They're not taken lightly, and the member knows me well enough uh, to know that I don't come forward the, with uh, these recommendations out of women easily. But we know how well they worked at the start of this year and how well they can work if we see maximum uptake and compliance. So when it comes to the uptake uh, of the general public, what I would say to the member, and I know um, he'll take this as the way it's meant, what I would say to him, I would ask him to join me in encouraging as many people across Northern Ireland take up the guidance that is offered because it's offered from a health perspective. It's offered in, the, uh, in the, the sentiment that it is given. It's offered in the sentiment that if we can get the maximum uptake, the compliance in regards to this six weeks, we will see a reduction in the number of cases. We'll see a reduction in the number of people who enter hospital. We'll see a reduction in the number of patients that we have in our ICU beds, and we'll also see a reduction in the number of people who lose their lives uh, due to this virus. 
Minister tell us, in ruling out this vaccination, which I see as critical, as he does, what steps has he taken to obtain, where it's appropriate, army assistance so as we can maximise the advance? I inadvertently didn't go back to the first point. In regards to the Joint Committee of Vaccine and Immunisation, their guidance is on risk of mortality and susceptibility to COVID. One of the things that was agreed by all four UK health ministers when the UK approach was taken to buy this vaccine was to follow that advice and guidance. So we took it out of the hands of politicians. I know the point the member makes in regards, but if teachers, why not other professions? Why not other frontline workers? Um, across Northern Ireland as well. So, while we deploy this vaccine to the clinically uh, vulnerable and more susceptible, that is the approach uh, that I take. It's, it's not easy. You know, there's so many calls, and I receive emails from different professions, different walks of life, who have valid reasons that think they should be further up uh, the scale as well. But what I said to Mr. McNulty as well: if a teacher or a member of our education authority or school falls into one of those more clinically vulnerable groupings, they will receive the vaccine in that order. Uh, in regards to, to the use of, of, of military, we are currently using uh, British Army in regards to how we prepare for the potential of a third surge. We use that strategic logistical uh, response and, and ability that they have. We've always used them in the past. We've used them uh, to transfer patients to England for ECMO treatment as well. So this perception that we don't use them when we do, we do. We, we are using them. In regards to the vaccine, because of the logistics and the licensing of this current vaccine, of the Pfizer vaccine, it must don't be done under trust governance. And that's why it's trust nurses and professionals who are delivering it, uh, even into our care homes and in the community at this point in time. I call Jerry Carl and I advise the remaining members that are going to call. We are well over time, and I'm asking people to be very succinct in their questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Thank you, Minister, for the statement as well. Minister, you state that schools cannot continue as normal, and I agree. Uh, but frankly, it could be vague enough that even the Education Minister could agree with that as he applies ahead uh, to return uh, to schools as normal and exams uh, in January. Member, stick to the health. This is the health minister. Yep. I want to ask the, minister, the health minister whether he believes that school exams and the antiquated system of academic selection should proceed at the risk of health and people's lives in January? Um, and, and again, what I say, what I say to the member, you know, the education minister is following with a statement in regards to that. But anybody who is delivering any service in any location must follow the health guidance and regulations. There is nobody exempt uh, to this. So in regards to delivering whatever exam, um, those who are delivering it, the, the venue that is hosting it, must follow the guidance to the letter of the law and instruction as well. So that's what I'll say as Health Minister. Those regulations are there. They're brought forward by the executive as a whole, uh, and no matter there is no exemption, no matter what the what, what the, the the activity uh, actually is, is is being delivered. It's very clear uh, in the guidance what the, uh, what actions and what precautions must must be followed. I will allow the member of supplementary, but if you don't stick to the health, then you won't speak in the next session. Uh, 
Um, yes, Mr. Speaker, I think, it's, I think it is connected, and I, I'm just wanting to ask the, the Health Minister whether there's any specific guidance around the spreading of uh, the virus or lack of spread of virus in education settings as opposed to workplace settings. Um, the PHA actually produces a weekly bulletin, uh, which is available on their website, which gives the number of educational locations that have recorded uh, an outbreak uh, by number as well. So that that's actually put out there on a weekly basis. You call Claire Sugden. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, for allowing me in, and thank the minister for uh, making his statement. Minister, I do not believe that it is a failure of society as a whole. To where we are now with these coronavirus restrictions. And it gives me no pleasure to say that I actually think it's a failure of this executive to communicate a clear message and instill confidence in that message, because I agree entirely with his earlier comments that in most cases people are willing to comply. They may not agree, but they will comply. The difficulty here is understanding what they are complying with. So that said, will the Minister make it clear what the Christmas bubble and social bubbles from 2nd of January now look like? It's gone from five days down to one. Is that 24 hours? If people stay overnight, does Boxing Day now count as a second day and will they be held to account on that? People are asking these questions, and I don't mean to be pedantic, but it's because this government is not providing the detail that we are required to be. In regards to the Christmas bubble, it is one day. So, uh, and as far as I'm concerned, should not include overnight stays because then you are going into a second day. The difference uh, that we have made in regards to what has actually been done in Scotland or in Wales is regard we've allowed people to substitute Christmas Day for another day. It depends should they actually be working during the, on the 25th. Um, of December. The other jurisdictions have been very specific. The Christmas bubble is solely for that day. In regards to messaging, and there was an answer to an earlier question, we are coming in now to a six-week period, which I hope and I believe will allow the message to get there, to get sunk in and to be bought into as well, because it is for that longer period of time. I think we saw you know, the two weeks, although it was effective in regards um, to maintaining the level of infection didn't go far enough as to actually reducing it. And I think it was because it was a, such a short period that the message they either didn't get communicated correctly or didn't actually resonate or sink into people with the importance. So in regards to these six weeks, I hope people hear what I'm asking them to do. I hope people hear uh, what our health workers are asking them to do as well, because it's on their behalf that we're making these asks. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and uh, thank you, Minister, for your response. But let, um, let me make the point that within that six weeks, we have a more intensive period in that first week, and the change from that first week then to the five weeks thereafter will confuse people. So let me put it to you that you really need to be quite clear about what you are expecting of people if, if you wish them to comply. If I could also ask the Minister, what about people who are, are, are already here? Will they be able to travel home? Will they have to make arrangements in hotels for example, because they can't stay more than that one day that's allowed. Um, these are the questions we're being asked, Minister, and I, I think we need to look at that because people are, are getting anxious understanding what's required of them. Um, I, I think if people are already here, they've travelled outside what was to be the five-day window anyway. Um, so if they're already here and staying in a home, they could, should consider themselves as part of that bubble. They should not form any other bubbles. That's where they are now and they are resident. In regards to, to travelling home, where we are in regards to travel advice uh, in the next week and the next fortnight, uh, I don't think we're there yet to be able to, to give that clarity. There is guidance in regards to what we see in, in England, as you can't travel from Tier 4 into Tier 3, Tier 
two or tier one, but you can, you know, you can go for a lower, lower incidence rate into a higher incidence rate. It's not advisable, um, but it is, it, it is what they allow to do. So, for anybody actually returning over to GB uh, after this period, you know, it, uh, there will, I'm sure there will be updated guidance and advice as to we see how travel advisance and guys, uh, guidance actually progresses over the next few days and weeks. Call Matthew O'Toole. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Minister, this is the first uh, year in about 20 when I haven't been travelling back from GB to spend Christmas here, so I'm aware of how important and how anxious people are, but I think we, we do need to be robust in, in managing this virus. But my question is really about something else that's happening in GB at the minute. Um, people, in addition to the new guidance, will be looking at what's happening in Dover and Kent with absolute horror. It remains, and it's been proven, that the refusal of the UK government to do what this Assembly asked and extend the Brexit transition period is a shocking and unconscionable, not conscionable thing. And I hear chuntering from sedentary positions in the position. We asked the member to stick to the agenda, which yeah, is I, a health minister in front of this house. Thank you. I am coming on to my question, Minister, because it's, uh, speaker, because it's relevant. Has the minister had uh, conversations with Matt Hancock and the health department in London to guarantee that our supply of vaccine into Northern Ireland is not going to be jeopardised by what looked like fairly profound um, disruptions to the supply chain from Calais to Dover? I can inform the member, yes, I've had those uh, conversations, and yes, that supply has been guaranteed. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad the Minister has, um, has made that clear. Can I also ask him uh, about a related question, which is, um, in terms of broader supply into Northern Ireland, supply of oxygen, other medical supplies, is he confident that those are going to continue to flow? I think it would just be helpful if he could put that on the record, that medical and other surgical uh, equipment that needs to get in here from GB isn't going to be disrupted. In regards to any travel ban that may be brought in and the effect that that could possibly have on logistical supply chains, um, that is an ongoing consideration that the executive is having because if we reduce uh, capacity, if we reduce the, the frequency uh, of ferries or flights, uh, it will ha potentially have a knock-on effect on supply of some of those medicines that come on uh, air routes and also other medical supplies that come by sea as well. But we have put into consideration and have done an extensive piece of work as to how we maintain uh, those medical supplies, those medical device supplies, um, over the next uh, period of time as well, even in regards to Brexit. Call Kelly Armstrong. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. Um, very quickly, Minister, I just wanted to check with you. Um, schools are heading back in January, as we know. Um, school leaders are all off now for the Christmas period. Can you confirm for me what protections or what information will be provided to those principals in advance of pupils arriving back in school in January, just with regards to the spread of the virus, what they need to do? Um, in, in regards to that, I, I leave that to, to the Education Minister. Uh, in regards to, to his statement as to what advice uh, he will supply to schools, as the member I'm sure will know, um, we don't supply that advice. It comes through the Department of Education and the Education Authority. We can supply advice and guidance uh, to those bodies, uh, which then is forwarded on to, to school principals and boards of governors as to how they, and what actions they need to take. But again, as I've said earlier on, you know, the interaction between my officials and the officials within the Department of Education uh, are, are intense. They are uh, well engaged and they will continue to be so. Kelly Armstrong, supplementary. Thank you very much, Minister. As a member of two boards of governors, I'm sad to say that I haven't received any information as such yet. But I would like to ask you then, domiciliary care workers, as I have spoken to before about, um, they're the people who are frontline dealing with... Um, patients 
in their homes that have been prescribed domiciliary care work, whether it's from the health trust or private companies. What advice is being provided to those private companies for those domiciliary care workers that may not work for trusts, but are still working with patients who are prescribed this, this type of support? Guidance is continually updated in regards to what precautions, what PPE, what level of infection uh, is actually present in, in the community, so that that guidance is provided continually to their employers. It should be then disseminated uh, down to the frontline staff as well, so they're aware of any additional steps that they should be taking as well. But if the member, uh, as I say this to the member, if the member has any specific concerns and she wants them to raise them directly with me, I'm happy to follow up on them. Call Mark Durgan. And I thank the Minister for his statement. Northern Ireland is the only region on these islands that does not have a fit-for-purpose self-isolation grant. People here have been forced to go to work against government guidance because they have to feed their families, and unless they have a household income of less than £20,400, there is no financial support for them to self-isolate. Would the Minister concur with me that the lack of an adequate self-isolation grant here has contributed to the transmission of COVID. I, I think, um, you know, and I thank the member for his question. And I, I see Carl shaking her head because what I will say to the member uh, is as well one of the things that was done in the initial phase by Minister Hargey was actually bring forward that loan, the self-isolation or an isolation loan. Uh, but I think the member is right. The, the constraint or the difference that there is here is in regards to uh, it's anyone on the less than £20,400 uh, per annum that is available in Connaville from it, so it was specifically targeted for those lower paid workers uh, who were finding it harder uh, to support themselves should they have to self-isolate during that two-week period as well. And one of the things that we did as a department as well was supply additional funding for workers either within the domiciliary care or care home units where we actually funded and were able to supply and provide um, the, the, those, care, the, those companies uh, with the additional top-up to allow uh, people to take statutory sick pay should they either contract COVID or have to self-isolate up to 80% of their salary as well. Supplementary, Mark Dorgan. the Minister for his answer. Uh, next month, uh, through the monitor round, the Minister for Communities has indicated that she will surrender a £2 million underspend in this COVID uh, discretionary support grant. Will the Minister work with the Minister for Communities to have this money ring-fenced to support people to stay at home and stop the spread? I, I haven't seen the detail of, of that surrender in, in, in the monitoring round, but what I will say, again, like many other um, colleagues across the executive, um, I find good working relationships uh, with both Ministers of Communities, the current one, uh, and the one who, who, who was previously in the post as well, in regards to what community supports needed to be put in place uh, during this pandemic, should that be even supports uh, for the good morning uh, call centres, the distribution of food boxes, the distribution of pharmacy, the support to, to community groups and charities as well. So there is a good working relationship that I have and our departments have in regards to making sure that we realise the additional strains and stresses uh, that this pandemic puts on people, the additional strains and stresses that these regulations actually put on individuals as well who find it hard to support themselves financially. So in regards to that specific ask, look, if, the, if the Minister of Communities is seeking further support in supporting our communities through this pandemic, uh, as they'll know in the past, I'll not be found wanting if it's the right thing to do and the right thing to spend that money on.
Members, that concludes questions on this particular statement. We will now have a suspension for five minutes prior to the next statement from the Minister of Education. I can remind all members about the importance of maintaining social distancing during the suspension. And for those leaving the chamber, please do so via the nearest door to your seat. Meeting resumes in five minutes. Plenary program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Program signed.
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Plenary. Agenda item three is a statement from the Minister of Education. I received notification on the 20th of December that the Minister wished to make a statement to the Ad Hoc Committee at today's meeting. A copy of the statement the Minister intends to make is included in your packet, page 11. I would like to welcome the Minister of Education to this meeting of the Committee. I now invite the Minister to make a statement, which should be heard by members without interruption. Following the statement, there will be an opportunity for members to ask questions. Minister. of schools following the Christmas break and potential further actions to be taken within the education sector to limit the transmission of the COVID-19 virus. Throughout this pandemic, despite the best efforts of us all, including parents, teachers and other staff within education, children have undoubtedly suffered. While generally less clinically vulnerable to COVID than adults, the necessary restrictions we've had to impose, they've had to endure disruption to their schooling, loss of learning, social inclusion, detrimental impact on their mental health, and the prevention of the opportunity to lead a normal life. The consequences may be felt in their lives for years to come. That is why myself, my department, and indeed the whole executive has sought to prioritise the future of our young people, and in particular their education, in consideration of any measures or restrictions that were being considered. That's why the executive agreed to a full return to school with mitigations, as soon as, as soon as it was safe to do so, and why the Executive uh, has supported a range of measures to support people both academically and in terms of mental health and well-being. That is why any decision around the education of our young people has not simply been taken in the context of the impact of COVID, but balanced against a wider range of considerations. It is also why the Executive, when considering the range of very severe 
but necessary restrictions in the current circumstances did not seek to close schools, but instead acknowledged that options needed to be developed that both protected the education and safety of our children while also combating the virus. My department, in cooperation with our colleagues in health, was tasked with taking this forward. This work is building on existing strong working relationships that have been in place with the health minister and his officials throughout this pandemic. And this cooperation will continue and deepen beyond the immediacy of current events. That work is continuing, and indeed a further meeting uh, was held this morning between officials. The provisions outlined today reflect that ongoing cooperation. When examining any interventions that could be made in our schools, two things became rapidly clear. First, there was a need to give swift clarity, particularly around the commencement of the new term in 2021, to our principals, to our teachers and education staff, to our parents and, most of all, to our pupils. Secondly, there was no potential intervention involving either temporary school closures or removal of face-to-face -face learning for some or all of our students, which was not damaging to them to a greater or lesser extent. That is why such an intervention should only be taken with extreme reluctance and as a last resort. I am also very cognisant of the many young people who have prepared for exams in January, including over 25,000 taking GCSEs, and the need to enable them to sit these exams. This, of course, would be subject, as the Health Minister indicated earlier, to the need for any exam locations and logistics being compliant without compromise with public health guidance and regulations. I, have also, uh, I must also with regard to the thousands, have regard to the thousands of vulnerable children we have in Northern Ireland. I would ask everyone to reflect uh, on the effect that whole school closures would have on those children in special schools with particular learning needs and specialist needs. I must also consider the children already on the child protection register, who's no, uh, those known to social services whose COVID experience has been extremely traumatic. For these children, school is a safe environment and a place where they can find reassurance. Interventions which reduce face-to-face -face learning for students to a greater or lesser extent would inevitably result in even greater loss of learning than they have already suffered, damage their prospects in examinations, create further mental stress and anxiety, and for many vulnerable children, remove the opportunity to attend school, which is often the safest and most secure place in their lives. Furthermore, such damage would not be evenly spread, but of the greatest impact on those most socially disadvantaged, widening further gaps within our system. That is why I have decided that schools need to reopen for face-to-face -face, uh, teaching for all students at their usual time in January. I will not take action which damages the future prospects of our young people, nor will I put them at harm from a public health risk. We also need to be aware that following an approach of whole-scale closures, would have a direct impact on the number of doctors, nurses and other NHS staff available in January, many of whom would be uh, home now looking after their children. The only other option would be placing those children into the care of grandparents, who surely we all want to protect as more vulnerable adults. However, let me make this abundantly clear. The basis on which schools will return in January will not be the basis of a return as normal. That would be an impossibility. And I agree with the Health Minister that matters cannot be as normal. Nor indeed, given the unusual conditions that education has had to work in this year, it cannot even be a return to the, new, uh, to the new normal. I made that very clear to all my executive colleagues no later than last night. We need a further step change in the actions that are taken. In coming to this conclusion, I am mindful of the need uh, for a number of additional steps and actions to be taken in education 
to limit the spread of the virus and protect our students, parents and education staff alike. While there have already been a, a wide range of protective measures put in place, we must go further. This is not simply within the classroom, but must also address, where possible, a range of external factors associated with educational settings in young people, which in many instances pose a greater threat. In developing a package of such interventions, which can be introduced swiftly, my department will not only work with the Department of Health, but a wide range of other stakeholders, such as principals, trade union representatives, the Education Authority, and in particular uh, the Youth Service within EA, the Children's Commissioner, TransLink, and other government departments, amongst others. This must quickly lead to a package of measures which could be implemented in early January. While not exhaustive, consideration has already be begun in the following areas. Firstly, extension of the use of face coverings within post-primary schools. Uh, secondly, how compliance on face coverings and, face, uh, and safety measures can be increased on school transport. How we can dramatically improve behaviour uh, at drop-off and collection of students around the school gates. Building on the current pilot scheme in Limavati, working alongside our colleagues in health, exploring how we can begin to further roll out test and trace capacity within schools. And finally, how messaging can be improved uh, to our young people to increase responsible behaviour and safety in connection with the pandemic. This list is not exhausted, and I will embrace any practical suggestion which both further combats potential spread of the virus and protects our children's uh, education. Other jurisdictions find themselves in a similar position to ourselves and produced a range of variable action. Common to all, however, is that they will have some or all of their students resuming face-to-face -face education in the first week of January. In taking strategic action to protect education and limit transmission, I think we need to look beyond single interventions which will have run their course in one week or two and cease to have any impact from that point on. Rather, we need a sustained package of interventions which day by day, week on week, month on month, have an ongoing positive contribution to our battle with COVID. Finally, it is clear as regards the progress of the pandemic, we are living in uncertain and fast-moving times. This is not simply about what needs to be done for restart, but appropriate interventions that will be needed at various times to combat COVID and sustain education. Where we are today may not be where we will be in four weeks' time. Where we will be in four weeks' time may not be where we are in eight weeks' time. But schools must also be given the time to prepare for any change. Therefore, at this stage, and dependent upon the public health situation, I'm proposing that remote learning would need to be brought, uh, brought in for primary schools for the non-exam year students, with effect from the 21st of January, on a temporary basis until the end of half term. We need to protect our most vulnerable students, and so irrespective of year group, the aim would be to keep special schools open throughout this period and to provide provision within all schools for vulnerable children. Mr Speaker, that is the best way to protect both society and the future of our young people. And I commend this statement to the House. And I thank the Minister for making the statement. And could I remind members that we have well over 20 members wishing to speak. It would be a man's intention to try and include everybody. 
uh, and they allow people to ask a supplementary, but that solely entire, uh, re re relies on members being succinct when they're asking their questions. Otherwise, all members who want to speak will not be able to speak or will just cut out the supplementaries, and we'll monitor that as we go through. Obviously, the, uh, before I call the chairperson for the Education Committee, you know that the, education, the chairperson of the committee will get a little bit of latitude. So, uh, Chris Little. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. It's unacceptable that the prospect of a cross-party assembly recall was necessary for the Education Minister to provide this statement today, and I would respectfully say that confidence in his approach at this time is now critically low. We have teachers and pupils testing positive for COVID this week and isolating through Christmas, a pending lockdown, the emergence of new COVID, and health advice to limit the opening of schools. So can I ask the Minister how, in this context, he can justify anything other than a supported and phased reopening of schools with provision for SEN and key worker children, and how is it safe or legal for private companies to administer mass testing of children on school premises for entrance to publicly funded secondary schools at this time? It's good to see the members taking his usual uh, constructive and cooperative approach to these, these matters. Uh, look, can I say in terms of that we have got the balance out, and it, it, it seems to me a situation in which the Chair of the Education Committee is not advocating face-to-face -face learning for children, I think is disappointing. We have to take into account all the factors. Uh, I've indicated I've spoken indeed extensively to health, and there is a package of measures that are there. But also in terms of uh, return to school, I've indicated that every jurisdiction that can be named is having either some or all of its pupils back in the first week. For example, in England, which seems to be the epicentre of the, the new strain, around about 75% are coming in uh, immediately, with everybody then back by the end of the, the first week. In the Republic of Ireland, uh, the position is that everybody is going to be there from day one throughout. Indeed, they've announced no mitigations at all at this stage. They are not looking at any level of disruption. So I think that this is a comprehensive package, which is not simply about producing something in the first week or two, but actually looking to the, the longer term. The member returns to the issue of the issue of transfer tests. The one thing is made very clear, and I think the, the health minister was very clear in this as well, for every environment in which any form of tests are taking place, whether it's a transfer test, whether it's a GCSE, or also traditionally a large number of particularly post-primary schools will use periods in January for their examinations in terms of mocks. On every single occasion, the demand is the same that those hosting the test have got to be absolutely compliant with public health guidelines. There is no exception and no differentiation made between whether this is public or private. They will have to follow those public health guidance. They will have to do that risk assessment, and they will need to make sure that everything within the location and the logistics uh, is compatible with public health guidance, and that is as it should be. Supplementary, Chris Little. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. My priority as Education Committee Chair has always been the safe education of children and young people. Can I ask the, the Minister what possible rationale there is for introducing blended learning for years 8 to 10 at the end of January, when lockdown is scheduled to complete? The indication, and I've spoken, for instance, with health officials this morning, you know, we are in a situation where the development of the virus will be uncertain. It will be a situation, and what I've indicated is obviously this is subject to the public health situation. I think for all of us we fear that by the time we reach um, in a month's time that there may be more difficult circumstances, but that, that is, not, is not certain, and we can see what impact, for instance, the current restrictions will have on that. 
It is about the fact that if we are to protect children's education, we also need to be given some level of opportunity, for instance, the schools to prepare. I have not listed particularly the years, but there will be uh, non-exam exam year students that will be clearly involved within this. And this is about trying to, to make sure that both schools have the opportunity to prepare, that there is not that level of disruption to pupils. And we found, if we go back to March, that because schools had to act instantaneously, I think getting things up and fully and running in terms of uh, the area of remote learning was not something which uh, was something that was able to be happening instantaneously. And we found for a range of students uh, that, it was, that it was something that uh, uh, was delivered on not exactly a uniform basis. So there's got that opportunity, a window of opportunity, and a notice um, for schools to prepare. Quite often, one of the criticisms that has been made because of the nature of the movement of the pandemic is that at times on education or health, groups have said, we are being thrown this piece of information, we're expected to react by Monday or whenever. This is giving people a degree of forewarning and an opportunity to have that level of preparation. And I think that is the sensible uh, route forward as regards this. Call Robin Newton. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker, and can I thank the Minister for his statement. It is indeed uh, very welcome. Uh, Minister, you will have heard uh, during your time in the Chamber when questions were being posed to the Health Minister uh, that the Health Minister indeed in his statement made it very clear that every Minister of the Executive uh, had agreed that the continuation of education must be a priority. He also indicated that he could not see schools returning to normal in January and he had written to you on that matter. Can I ask the Minister what level of discussions you've had and what the detail of those discussions was with the Health Minister on this return to school issue? There has been a range of discussions that have taken place because this is not, as I said, simply a one-off event. It's not what is the decision taken for a particular day in January, but it goes beyond that. So there have been discussions at a whole range of levels, as indeed there's been throughout this pandemic. That has involved direct discussions with the Health Minister. I've spoken to him on a number of occasions. It has involved uh, detailed discussions with officials and also both myself and officials dealing directly with the Chief Medical Officer and the Chief Scientific Advisor. We had uh, this morning very detailed conversations between officials and the CMO and CSA on the, the pathways and the way forward on that. And I spoke directly to the Chief Medical Officer uh, himself this morning as well. Uh, while I, don't, I think it would be wrong to, uh, to breach the ongoing confidentiality of, of any discussions, it is clear uh, from those discussions that I believe that in terms of as a way forward, and certainly as things stand today, that, that education and health are very much on the same page as a, a way forward. This is something where people are happy as a, a direction of travel. Now, I indicated that things in four weeks' time or six weeks' time may not be exactly the same, and there may need to be, therefore, further adjustments will take place. But I think there has been good cooperative relationship, and one I think that will continue into the future as we move ahead, and it is clear working alongside our health officials that education and health are very much on the same page as regards this way forward. Robin Newton, supplementary. Thank you, uh, Mr. Mr. Speaker. Minister, within your statement, you also say, and, and I know that myself and one other member of the Education Committee has been particularly concerned about those children, have you described them as known to social services? Uh, you indicate that uh, for those children, COVID experience has been extremely traumatic. Can I ask you, as they return to school, Chair, as, uh, Minister, 
what measures would you be putting in place for that particular group of children? It's important that we give particular levels of protection to those children. And so consequently, uh, when, for example, we're looking at both the need, generally speaking, for return to school, which I think is beneficial particularly to those children, but also as we look ahead to the situation in which it is likely that, that there will be a requirement for certain year groups that will require remote learning to um, ease some of the pressures that are there, that even within that, there is that special level of provision is made for those vulnerable children still to be at school. Now, we have across the board, and some will be perfectly fine when they're at home, but across the board, roughly speaking, about 10% of our school children could be regarded as being vulnerable. And it's important we provide that level of, of protection. Uh, that, I think, was a worry across all jurisdictions during earlier lockdowns. And it's important that we scope ahead and try to make sure that that, that protection is put in place for them. Call Karen Mullen. Minister, I have to say I'm di di deeply disappointed by your approach today. Um, there is absolutely nothing new in today's statement, despite the advice of the Health Minister to yourself and the Executive last week that limited, limiting school openings should be considered, and despite the alarming developments in England over the weekend. On behalf of the entire sector, many I have spoken to over the last number of days, I am sincere, sincere, sincerely appealing to you to urgently review your position in consultation with the Chief Medical and Chief Scientific Officer to ensure that the threat of infection in our schools is minimised. Well, I'm sorry you're, you're disappointed. Um, I would say there has been direct consultation. As I said, I would spoken directly and personally to the Chief Medical Officer only a few hours ago, and indeed in terms of the way forward, it is one that, that health say is being compatible with that. Now, I mean, again, indication I completely agree with the uh, with the Minister when he says a return as normal is not sustainable. This is not as normal. This is about a range of measures. It is about looking at specifically as well what can be done then with schools having a level of preparation. And may I also say that in terms of reaction, as you mentioned, from the sector, I've had a lot of contacts uh, on this issue clearly. I've had some people who've said, uh, no, they don't want to see return to school in January, certainly in terms of uh, with the, the current situation. I've had a lot of contacts within the sector, including school principals, including teachers, who've said, no, it's important that we get children back in at the beginning of January. I've had overwhelming numbers of contacts from parents saying that as well. So I think we need, there is no doubt that there is not entirely a uniform view, but I think that the measures that are being put in place today create both that health protection and also the protection to children's education. Supplementary Carmel. Thank the Minister for his answer. And Minister, you will know that my position is around schools being open and but safe and sustained to do so. Um, I continuously have raised with you around contingency planning and scenarios, and we haven't yet seen that. I also want to thank all our school leaders and school staff for their continued hard work. Uh, can I ask the Minister to advise of the level of engagement he has had with teaching unions in respect of this decision? And why there was a meeting cancelled last week with the teaching unions? Well, I think in terms of the detail, in terms of options, there is constant contact, I think, with the teachers' union. I'm not aware of the exact specific circumstances of what was said and what wasn't said directly in relation to last week, but I can get the, the member the, the detail. It, look, it is the case that there is not a uniform view out there amongst the profession. Indeed, even what is expressed by the teachers' unions does not always reflect absolutely every teacher, believe me. And I have had school principals been in touch with me. I've had uh, teachers saying they want to ensure that there is that resumption in January. 
I would also indicate to the member that, again, if she looks not that far away from her own constituency across the border, there is an absolutely full resumption happening in Donegal in the rest of the Republic of Ireland. Now, you know, I'm sure the member would not want to see a partitionist attitude in relation to this uh, approach. Uh, and consequently, every jurisdiction, even uh, Scotland and Wales, are aiming to have uh, large sections of their school population back uh, from the first week in January. A number of, for example, within Wales, there are a number of county councils that are looking at full resumption from day one. So it is about trying to strike that level of balance. It is about ensuring that there is that coordination with health, and that is happening on both a daily basis and one, as I said, where there's been direct contacts, uh, not simply at official level, but myself at a whole range of, uh, and I think that in that broader level, uh, while there will always be different emphasis between health and education because we're pursuing uh, slightly different absolute priorities, I think there is a broad uh, agreement on the prioritisation, both not to close schools, but also then to take levels of mitigating measures. Well, Daniel McCrossan. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker, and I thank the Minister for the answers to the questions so far. Minister, your statement today is totally lacking in definite action details, and given the situation, this is unforgivable. If you really believed, Minister, that education is critically important, we would not be in this position to begin with. You would have had a plan rolled out and in place. Indeed, Minister, the statement that you raised on Friday, calling on primary schools to host transfer tests, is further evidence that you are totally out of touch. You can't do the point. Mr. McCrossan, the comments are supposed to be directed through the chair. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, indeed, Minister, the statement. Sorry, Mr. Speaker. Indeed, the minister statement issued on Friday, calling on primary schools to host transfer tests, is further evidence that the, this minister is totally out of touch with our schools and our principals and young people. Minister, you have failed our children and our schools. What explanation do you have for this failure, this abdication of responsibility, this unprecedented mismanagement to school principals, teachers, staff and pupils right across Northern Ireland who have now given up any hope of seeing any leadership from you as Minister for Education? Well, you know, I, I think again that's probably more of a comment really ultimately than a question in connection with that. May I deal specifically? I have indicated that, and I'm not alone within this House in saying that, that I believe in terms of the transfer test, both in terms of uh, but particularly in terms of the mental health and well-being of our children, that the best place for that to happen would be in primary schools. And I know that there are others who have, have said that as well. That would be my preferred solution. It is clear that that is not a view which is shared throughout the sector. But there are some primary schools, again, who would take a view that they would be supportive of that. But this only becomes a realistic prospect if we get the buy-in of primary schools across the board. And I regret that that buy-in is not there. That would be my preferred solution. So... I have to say my job is actually to try and deliver as much as possible for our young people to try to point to where I believe the best solutions are rather than trade insults with the Honourable Member. Supplementary. Thank you, Mr Speaker, and I thank the Minister uh, for not answering my concerns. Uh, does this Minister accept that the appearance of the new variant of COVID will require a comprehensive review of his safety guidance to schools, and will the Minister undertake to commence a review immediately. Will he also seek to get school staff vaccinated as a priority? Well, I deal with the, that. I mean, look, there will be change, and indeed, we've all found a situation. While I think there's been some knowledge from the Department of Health uh, that over the weekend there has been a change because of the, the variant. What I would say is that actually a lot of the actions, indeed, if you talk to health professionals with regards to this, 
The transmission rate of the new, of the new variant is greater. A lot of the general precautions, and I, I spoke, for instance, to the Chief Scientific Advisor on this yesterday, um, a lot of the precautions that are there remain the same irrespective of the variant. So it, the principal difference, and while I, I suspect the Health Minister was answering education questions, there's a danger of me answering uh, health questions within this, is because of the nature of the, the variant, it is not, for instance, that levels of social distancing, uh, face coverings, hygiene are any less effective. It is that when effectively someone, uh, the uh, particles that, that are involved with the vaccine, that it feel like it, it clings, to the, uh, clings to that person, clings to their throat more so. And that, that is where I think the, the variation. So a lot of the advice will, will largely remain the same. But I'll indicate as part of that that, the, uh, uh, that there will be a range of additional measures which I think can be brought in very quickly. For example, I mentioned to give you one example in terms of, because the concern principally at times has been from health professionals, from CM, uh, CMO and CSA, is not particularly what's happening within the schools. It's around some of the other associated activities. And so, for example, uh, whereas we moved a while ago to a situation in which uh, we had a common position between public transport and school transport in terms of face coverings, we're looking now then at uh, and working with the EA, and there's already been contact with the EA, as to how we can do, for instance, spot checks on, on buses to try to make sure that the data is ratcheted up. The, the member does make a very good point in terms of the vaccination. I would be strongly in favour um, of the vaccination being at an early stage for teachers. I would be happy to and will be making representations to the health minister in, in relation to that. To be fair to the health minister, as he has indicated, it is not a decision that lies entirely within his purview, but one... Uh, that lies within the, the wider sort of UK group. But I would be urging the, the Health Minister to make that case as regards uh, trying to ramp up uh, the speed with which teachers and uh, education staff are able to receive the, the vaccine. I call Robbie Butler. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, thank you, Minister, for his statement. Uh, Minister, um, with regard to um, blended learning and remote learning, what would be your assessment of the availability and the effectiveness of that to be ruled out for schools and what is preventing you from engaging with school leaders at the moment to allow a phased return to allow them to, to better develop that system for the start of January? The issue is, I think, to be fair to, to school teachers in terms of, and there's been debates over the exact timing of this, teachers do deserve a level of break over the Christmas period. It will take a, a little bit of time to be, to be put in place. Some schools may be in a position to move very quickly towards that. Um, and I think one of the things that we find at the earlier part of the year is that schools were at different speeds. The level of effectiveness of remote learning um, was not the same across the, the whole of the country. So I think that there does need to be, given that opportunity, to have that, that maximum level of rollout so that it can be um, implemented in a way which is, is consistent across the board. But it is also the case, and I mentioned within the statement, that moving to any form of remote learning was something that was only being done as a last resort and a level of reluctance. Because what we have found, it's not just, if you like, the quality of the material or indeed the quality of, of learning. Remote learning, with the best will in the world, while it can be done very well, is not as good as face-to-face -face teaching. It is not about that um, interpersonal connection between teacher and pupil, which is there in terms of face-to-face -face teaching. So from that point of view, I think it is, it is also the case that it, is, it can be, with preparation, a good system, but is it second best? Yes, by definition it has, and that's part of the wider compromises that may need to be made across the piece. Robbie Butler, supplementary. 
Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Thank the Minister for his answer. Uh, Minister, you will be well aware that I've been uh, pushing the message for bringing it back to primary on behalf of uh, Muller from Bangor, Naomi McBurney, since perhaps March. It's something that I've been uh, wedded to because we're not agreed in this House as to transfer tests, and I thought it would be the, the, the best halfway house solution. But I was disappointed that it was Friday night that it was accepted that it would be a good solution. I was further disappointed this morning by AQE's statement that they're not prepared to accept the fact that actually bringing it back to primary would be physically safer to prevent the spread of COVID and also reduce the anxiety of pupils. Minister, what's, what is there to prevent you today and tomorrow bringing the stakeholders together, be that AQE, GL, primary schools and the grammar school sector to put children first because all I hear is we put children first, we put children first, our children need to be put first and the confidence needs to be put in place. I think from that point of view, as I said, I want to see them in primary schools. I acknowledge that the member has been very proactive on this particular subject and has been very consistent in his views. I think the problem on that is I can permit but I cannot compel, both in terms of the fact that the exams are outside my remit, they are from that point of view, private organisations that, that are doing it. But also for this to happen, it would require the buy-in of uh, primary schools, of schools of, of governors. And the problem is, while there is a small level of appetite for that, I think that that from certainly even would probably be acknowledged from some of the contacts that have been made by bringing it back to primary, that whenever they put out circulars, they got probably a relatively small minority of schools coming back saying, we'd be willing to do this. I think the problem is that the only way, and I, it, it seems to me, unfortunately, extremely unlikely that, that, that this will be the case, the only way that we can do this equitably would be if we had the buy-in of virtually all primary schools and governors across the country. Because I think what would be a difficult situation uh, would be if we had some primary school pupils doing it in their own school and others not. It would be the equivalent of some playing home and some playing away, and that wouldn't be an equitable situation. But uh, I have always indicated this is something that I both want to see and also have permitted. And indeed, uh, going back, I know that the member cites the position since March. Um, going back to a previous time in, uh, in government, it was in 2016 that the, the previous bar with what it was, which says that they could not happen in primary schools, was lifted by myself. So I have always been of the view that, that this should be permitted and it would be advantageous. But what I cannot do, unfortunately, is compel people. Call Christopher Stafford. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. And I declare an interest as a governor of a, of a primary school. Um, during health questions, or questions to the health minister, I put to the minister this statement that was made by Dr. Shamez Ladhani from Public Health England, who's a consultant epidemiologist there, and he said about school closures, it's not just about children's education, it's about their growth, their upbringing, their social skills, interacting with others, their mental health, making sure we, they, they get fed properly and they have access to social services. What we do know is it's just so important to keep children in school. Can I ask the minister if he would agree that it is a priority? It should be a priority that we keep children in school for precisely the reasons Dr. Ladhani has outlined. Member indeed is, is completely correct in, in relation to that. And that is why, to be fair, not just my, myself, but the wider executive has said that in terms of prioritisation on any actions that we need to take in relation to COVID, that there should always be a prioritisation for education. Uh, that it is not simply about um, the issue of what the level of spread of COVID would be. And also, I think we need to work into that that there has also been an acceptance that simply, for example, among some year groups, 
if we were in a situation where the school was closed, that there's also the substitution effect that the bigger problem in a number of the large outbreaks has not been what has happened in the school, but particular levels of socialisation that has happened outside the school. So there's, there is that um, counter issue as regards health as well. But both on a wider health issue, on a mental health issue, on a progression for children in a whole range of ways, there is significance in schools being open. And that is why, even in terms of the medical health professionals, have consistently said this is not a narrow issue simply of where it happens with the R rate in schools. It is about taking all those issues into account, producing a balance, which is why we need to get a balanced approach to this and other issues. Mr. Stauffer, Thank you, sir. A recent report by UNESCO stated school closures carry high social and economic costs for people across communities. Their impact, however, is particularly severe for the most vulnerable and marginalised boys and girls and their families. Does the minister find it, like I do, absolutely bizarre that members of the Education Committee, the Education Committee of the Northern Ireland Assembly, should be on their feet advocating for less time in school for our children? Well, sorry, and, and I hear from a secondary position. Obviously, the member um, who is making these remarks from a secondary position is not actually uh, listening to what is said. The schools will not be closing in January. We will have some groups that will be doing remote learning if that is what is required by the public uh, health position. And it is also the case that I indicated on that issue that it is on the basis of that is a last resort, it is a reluctant position to go down on that basis. But undoubtedly, it is the case. Uh, I mean, I, let me put it this way, the number of bizarre things I come across in life I never cease to be uh, amazed at, so I'm, I'm not going to be particularly surprised today um, in relation to anyone's uh, remarks. But it is also the case that in terms of, even with remote learning, again, that will widen disadvantage. You know, there's no doubt this is about trying to minimise the problems, because indeed with remote learning or indeed school closures, um, the, the most able pupils will always, generally speaking, flourish under whatever circumstances. The most financially advantageous families will always ensure that their children, um, be it in terms of additional tuition, be it in terms of additional support, will always be okay. The people who will be most disadvantaged by any levels of disruption will be the vulnerable, the less able, some with special needs, and those who are economically worse off. And that is why any steps that we take in terms of disruption to education, have got to be taken in the most reluctant fashion. I call Nicola Brogan. Thank you, Minister, for your statement here today. Um, first of all, I'd like to say I'm pleased to hear that you too um, see the importance of a consistent approach um, to the pandemic uh, throughout the island of Ireland. Um, we will um, we'll be gathered with evidence either side of the border. Um, given the prospect of remote learning from the 25th of January, can you advise of the plans you've put in place to support children with special educational needs? The point I've made in, in relation to that is that for those, and indeed for those vulnerable children, vulnerable children also will include those with, with special educational needs who are on the statement within mainstream schools and also for special schools. I think that in terms of any action that is taken in terms of remote learning, that the opportunities for those children to be in school still directly uh, albeit they will not be there, it will not be sort of the large cohorts that, that are there. We've always got to make sure that the doors are open to them and that there is that opportunity. Even if they're doing remote learning, they can do it from within schools with a supported environment. So, you know, that is why I think there's a critical distinction has been drawn 
uh, within that, and that is, as I indicated in the statement, of whatever year group that, that is uh, of relevance. Nicola Brogan, supplementary. Um, Minister, during the first COVID wave, um, you had reduced the statutory obligations in respect to children with special educational needs to best endeavours. Um, this obviously created major gaps in provision and support um, to these children and their families. What um, are you doing now to ensure that this will not be repeated? I have no intention of putting forward um, any change in terms of the uh, situation. Obviously, you know, we could all be overtaken by some level of unforeseen uh, events. Uh, and I suppose it is about trying to learn uh, from the, the first wave. I think there was no uh, alternative but to have some level of legal variation directly at that stage because I think working alongside colleagues, we weren't able just to get always the, the fullest of support that, that was needed. But I, I take very seriously the need to protect um, special education. And that's why I think that in looking at whatever arrangements are put in place, that closure in schools in general is not something that um, would be acceptable, but trying to make sure then that there is particular provision for those with special educational needs must be top of our agenda. Nicole Gordon, Dunn. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and I do thank the Minister for his efforts. And uh, I think I'm not sure whether he or Minister Swan has the most difficult job at, at this time, but I must say, to be fair to uh, Minister Weir, he has been out and about right across this province with his mask on visiting schools right throughout Northern Ireland. So he's very much aware of the issues and, and has been in contact with, with teachers, staff and pupils. Minister, uh, as already has been mentioned, we fully appreciate the fact that you have mentioned special educational needs. And I know you were kind enough to, to visit Clifton Special School in Bangor. Um, how much did this influence your thinking? And, uh, reviewing all the evidence, the need to, to try and maximise the support we can give to children with special needs, because the actual fact that they get into school, get support from their staff and their teachers is so important, not just to them, but to their families. Okay, it is critical, and I think while we, there's often, first of all, a lot of focus rightly on children and also those within schools, we do need to also take a high level of cognizance of the impact on parents uh, as well. Um, you know, I think both in terms of being able to um, provide the best support to children with special educational needs, I think there does need to be that mix of home and school, I think is critical. Some of that is even on the basis of what is medically available within schools being better. But also, if we take a look at, at a range of groups within special educational needs, and so for instance, those children with autism, um, particularly value a, as much of a routine as possible. And I think, again, we disrupt that at the peril to those, those children, which is why any actions that, that have to be taken have got to be done in, uh, in a measured way as possible. Uh, the, mem the member mentions uh, Clifton, which shows at least all politics is local. I have been to a number of, of special schools, and it has very much impressed me, particularly since uh, the resumption of, of schooling in September, the need to protect those children um, remaining with, within that. Uh, obviously, in terms of Minister Swan, I would say that neither of us intending to bubble with each other over the Christmas period. That might be a little bit too depressing for both of us. Gordon Don, supplementary. Thank you, Mr Speaker, and thank the Minister for his comprehensive report and his ongoing support for, for Clifton Special School. Minister, you mentioned a number of 
additional measures in relation to improving hygiene and, and safety, health and safety within our school um, structures. Can you give us an assurance that there will be adequate funding for to, to provide um, the necessary measures, put in place the necessary measures, including deep cleaning when needed within our schools, and that budgets will not be limited, and staff and boards of governors will not be looking at the sums and wondering can we afford to have effective, clean and hygienic places within our schools? There has been additional, indeed, to be fair again to the executive, uh, a number of bids at times have been met to provide that support. There's been, I think, roughly speaking, this financial year, about 26 million, for instance, has been, whenever it's described on PP, that's largely speaking not the physical equipment of, of gloves and masks, but more frequently the, the use of cleaning materials have been put in place. So there has been a, a considerable level of support. Um, and I think that that will not be found wanting. What I would suggest is that there are a range of these, these measures which are not necessarily massively cash-driven. So if, for example, there's a bit more proactivity in terms of checking buses, if there's an issue working alongside health and what is required on um, testing issues and increasing that will be something we work closely with health. It is a question of, uh, for example, looking for post-primary schools as to whether we then extend the locations in which masks um, and face coverings are worn. Those things, again, which are not particularly cash-intended, um, uh, but I think can be carried out. And I would indicate that in terms of the measures that need to be put in place, um, from the point of view of the general protections, particularly against the variant, the scientific advice seems to be that, broadly speaking, the measures that we have for protection at the moment will tend to be the same, irrespective of, if we call it sort of old COVID or new COVID, on that basis. Carly Cullen. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker, and thank the Minister for his statement. Um, from last week, and even talking to a primary school principal this morning and a board of governor of another school, it's, and then from reading the, the minister's statement, it's clear to me this is, this is about facilitating the 11 plus, to be frank. Um, so therefore, I am disappointed in that. Given the fact that there, the, the new strain of this virus has the potential to impact on every citizen, including school children, and you didn't fully answer my colleague Karen Mullen's question. What steps are you taking in conjunction with the Minister for Health and indeed other health advisors to ensure that everybody within the school community is safe regardless? From that point of view, the virus and even indeed the current virus does impact potentially on everyone and we need to make sure that, that's, that any level of myth around that um, you know, is... is Exploded in that regard. It's not simply a question of the new strain impacting on young people specifically. Both the old and the new will have levels of, of impact. In terms of safety within society, I think the range of mitigations that a society as a whole are taking can try and protect people as much as possible. Can we have any situation in which everybody is 100% safe? No, there isn't. We can only try and mitigate the risks as best possible. That is why I think part of the um, uh, the rationale is to look at what can be done directly in January, what can be then done to ease the pressure by way of remote learning. So there are a range of measures that have been put in place, and it has been working closely with officials from the Department of Health, and therefore it is not the Department of Education going in a different position to where health would be. 
Supplementary, Carol Nicholin. Uh, well, I thank the minister for that response, um, and I would, ex- you know, I would expect him, like any other minister, to follow the health and scientific advice in relation to the, the whole school community. You know, but as a former minister of communities, I do find it a bit rich. You know, talk, talking about deprivation and the impact uh, on children not being at school at the same time implementing the 11 plus. I mean, I just find that bizarre. However, can the minister? also confirm what arrangements and what discussions he's had with infrastructure regarding school transport because we're all talking and we've seen it you know school buses been appearing at the full capacity so we're not looking for intimate secrets we're looking for an overall reflection of how safety of children and those traveling with the children are going to be not only monitored but changed where appropriate yeah, i'm glad the members not looking for intimate secrets from either myself or Nicola Mallon um, in connection with that. Perish the thought, indeed. Uh, look, this is an ongoing situation. From the point of view of the executive took an approach in terms of the wider bits on Thursday, uh, working particularly with health officials. As I indicated, I've mentioned TransLink. I think that will also involve. So it's, this will be an evolving situation. As I indicated, my officials particularly um, spoke to EA this morning in terms of looking at how they can roll out uh, particularly spot checks on, um, on, on school buses, for instance. There will have to be then a joined-up approach is what we can do between Department of Education, Department of Infrastructure, TransLink and EA. Uh, but as the member can appreciate, in terms of decisions being taken, we're still at a very early, early stage. But it's not a question of everything being there. Um, it's not necessarily purely what will be there on day one. I think equally important to this will also be what will be there on day 11, day 21, day 31. So it's about getting something that is sustainable. But look, I will be very clear and very happy to work um, with my minister, ministerial colleague Nicola Mallon and the others within infrastructure to do what we can. Because I think it is also the case that, for example, if we're looking at various measures which can then be placed within school buses, uh, can we look and see where the read across to that will be within TransLink generally and to see whether there's some action. Again, most people are responsible, but it's actually trying to beef up that level of compliance uh, with people. There is also, I think, allied to that, which also then has an implication into transport. I think there's a lot of good work, and recently, for instance, I visited a number of, of youth facilities where both EA Youth Service and particularly groups on the ground have a direct contact uh, with young people, and particularly teenagers. And I think there's also a job of work that... Um, with respect, if myself or yourself or even the Minister of Health is standing up and trying to lecture young people on what they should be doing, it is actually about trying to get that peer information as well. So a lot of this is also not simply around what we can do in terms of compliance, but how we actually can better improve effective messaging and who is getting the message across to young people. Well, Justin McNulty. I can thank the Minister for coming today and for his statements and for answers, his answers thus far. Minister, many parents concerned about the potential for their children having to isolate over Christmas took them out of school a week early. Who could blame them? Minister, whether you like it or not, that signals a failure in leadership from the Department of Education. The data shows infection rates are more than double here in the north than they are on all, on all other parts of the island, and the peak in numbers is in children of school age. What are the new mitigations? What are new measures? What is the new contingency plan to allow children and, parents and teachers and school staff to return to schools safely in January? 
further member to the statement, pity was neither listening or reading it um, clearly in, in relation to that. Can I say also in terms of the impact on children? First of all, I got a large number, again, a lot of parents were very keen to ensure that their, their children did remain in school. And indeed, one of the reasons and one of the concerns whenever this was discussed um, at executive level, it was very unclear from the medical side of it in the run-up to Christmas, whether, for example, an earlier start, an earlier finish that would have been in any way beneficial or may well have been counterproductive. And that was the medical evidence that we got, because the concern that putting large numbers of young people effectively simply dismissing them into the community in the teeth of Christmas could well have led to high levels of uh, rise in the, the R rate in certain cases. And indeed, where we have seen the largest single incidence um, of spread of the virus, the source has tended to be where it has been socialisation away from school and outside of school rather than within the school, which is a much more controlled environment. He mentions in terms of the Republic of Ireland, which does have certain level of advantages in terms of location, in terms of, um, in terms of community. The indication that, that I have heard um, in the last day or so is that the R rate is now rapidly rising in the Republic of Ireland and I suspect is well above what is, what is here in Northern Ireland. So these things will, will fluctuate. But I think none of us should be in any way contented that everything uh, that is being done to, to limit the level of virus is particularly successful in one jurisdiction rather than another. Supplementary, Justin McNulty. Thank the Minister for her statement. Minister, I was in for your statement and I read the statement and it still doesn't tell me what is happening in January. I'm sure teachers and principals will be asking the same question, what is going to be happening? Where is the detail? And surely that should have been agreed in advance of now, 10 months into the pandemic, it should have been planned out. What is the situation in relation to vaccinations? What have you done with the health minister to ensure there is a programme of vaccination for teachers and for school staff to ensure that we can get children back to school safely and as normal as possible, as quickly as possible? I I appreciate, obviously, that the member has uh, read that. Um, it, it does remind me, perhaps, of the, the phrase that, of someone being um, none the wiser, but at least remarkably better informed um, when it comes to things on it. But the, the member does raise in relation to the issue of, um, uh, of the, uh, the vaccination. But I, I have made it clear, and I, I appreciate, obviously, the health minister answered this. I think, I'm trying to think of it was Mr. McCrossan raised this, this earlier. I would very much be in favour of early vaccinations for teachers. I think, to be fair to the Health Minister, as he has indicated, this is not simply something which is even within his remit within Northern Ireland. It is something which is being decided on a four-nation basis. But I would be urging him to be lobbying hard to ensure that teachers are, um, uh, are prioritised within this, to try to make sure that we maximise the, uh, the level of support that, that is there. So he will not find me on the opposite side. We, we may be on opposite sides on a range of things on that basis, but this is not one in which we've been in a different position on. Could I just say before we call the next speaker that we're, we have so far heard from 10 members and we have a further 14 or 15 members indicating to speak. We're not going to get through all of those members. Um, so could I ask people to continue being as brief as possible and could I ask the Minister to consider that also? Thank you. I call Steve Egan. Thank you very much indeed, Mayor. I thank the Minister for his comments so far. Um, one of the joys of sitting here, uh, particularly when we're looking on social media, is that I've been directly contacted by a principal within my constituency. And you made a remark about saying you cannot compel uh, either the providers of the transfer test or the grammar schools to do that as well. But one of the notes that they've just sent me is the fact that the Education Authority can compel under numerous health and safety issues, and I'm speaking as a, as a 
governor of a school. We know that is the case. So that is the circumstances. Why cannot you meet with the people who provide the transfer test and the grammar schools and indeed on health and safety grounds compel so we can actually do these tests within primary schools? Because uh, the member, and again, it's not simply a question of those who are providing the test, but those who would have to host the test. And it is very clear that, unfortunately, there is very strong opposition uh, amongst a wide range, both of trade unions, but also uh, primary schools, to it being held in the, the primary school. Now, you know, to have a situation which you are forcing people into a building where potentially, if there is a strong opposition to it, where perhaps even the, the doors may be shut, where the doors are locked, this can only be done ultimately whenever we've got that level of buy-in. And it's a buy-in across primary schools that is not simply a general acceptance from a lot of schools. It's one if we do this fairly. So I have a lot of sympathy for the, the position that the member outlines. I suspect that he and I would be on a very similar page in relation to that. But I reiterate, I can permit, I can encourage, but I cannot compel. Steve Egan, supplementary. Um, thank you very much indeed for the Minister's remark. Uh, bearing in mind the remarks you've just made, is there any way we could open a consultation and a dialogue with schools and governors, particularly in the short period of time we have, to be able to do this? Because, quite frankly, it's the most sensible option. Well, look, I understand that. I think in terms of dialogue and opening up a consultation, I think, unfortunately, we've reached the point where it seems unlikely that there will be any level of movement or any opportunity for, for this year. But I think we need to look, and maybe take sometimes when we look at what has happened within the pandemic and look to a wider bit, I certainly... I believe there is an opportunity to look at this again in a, in a longer-term context, because it's not simply what is the, the one-off solution for this year, important while that is. It's actually about looking to the future. Paul Palm Cameron. Thank you, Mr Speaker, and I thank the Minister for his statement to the House today. Uh, Minister, it's clear to this Assembly that the children who will suffer disproportionately uh, the most from school closures are those from lower socio-economic backgrounds and those in challenging family circumstances. And we know that UNESCO recently said that school closures carry high social and economic costs for those for people across communities. Their impact, however, is particularly severe for the most vulnerable and marginalised. And earlier in the year, through the speaker, uh, I did have a meeting with principals across South Antrim and they certainly had very serious concerns around remote learning in that some pupils uh, were not able to access that remote learning, uh, possibly not even because of technology, but uh, it was more an issue around family support. So has the Minister concerns uh, of um, how remote uh, learning would be made available to all who need it? I think the, the member makes a very valid point. It's not simply, uh, you know, where there are gaps in terms of the facilities, in terms of, um, you know, and, and there was a considerable level of investment that was put into place and can continue in terms of um, devices. Sometimes that will be about what the availability of broadband is within an area, but quite often it's, it's, there will be a range of circumstances in which uh, there isn't necessarily just the same level of family support um, the environment may not be there. And indeed, there will be a lot of children who will flourish within a school because they're placed within the school, but when detached from that, will not be in the same position. And that is why look, there will need to be, as time moves on, at times a range of intervention, depending upon where we are with the virus. But that any actions which disrupt uh, the direct learning of children should always be done most reluctantly and at the last resort. Tom Cameron, supplementary. Thank you, Mr Speaker, and thank you, Minister, for his um, answer there. Um, Minister, 
we, we have taken evidence from the Health Committee um, in, in the past, recent past, around uh, the impact of uh, children being at home when schools are closed and indeed uh, around lockdowns. And we know that for many children that home is actually not a safe place for them to be and school is exactly a safe place for them to be. Uh, does the Minister have any figures or statistics around how many reports um, in terms of um, child safety are made, uh, originate from schools themselves? I don't have a direct figure to hand. We can, um, I'm sure we can furnish any information with that, but it is undoubtedly the case. It's not just purely from an academic point of view, but it's, it's the implications um, that are there from the point of view of child safety. And part of the issue is that while vulnerable children can be identified where there can be particular categories of children, the worry throughout this in different jurisdictions, at times within a home environment, will be it is not simply those children that are very directly on the radar, but in some cases what is happening behind the closed doors that we simply don't know about, where additionally pressures are built up within the family, frustrations, maybe financial or otherwise, with people finding themselves in a situation where they know, have no real alternative other than to be really at home 24-7. And that creates a particular risk, both in terms of um, issues around domestic violence, um, but also issues around abuse, uh, issues around potential threats and dangers to children. And that is why I think that in terms of um, simply looking at uh, more children being at home, yes, there is a particular COVID implications to be weighed up, but it also needs to be weighed up in a wider context of the wider risks that are there to children as well. Paul Ardia Flynn. May I get to Khan Kolya? Um, and in the Minister's statement, I'm conscious that the Minister has accepted that there is a need for some form of um, remote learning from the 25th of January, but I would like to also ask um, what re reassurances can he provide that that date isn't too late? And was any consideration given? Um, to stagger the reopening of schools in January at, at any stage? Thank you. I think the issue is that all options were looked at, and I think the problem is, and even with the remote learning at, at a later stage, is that any level of interventions which have children, large numbers of children at home, um, will create a level of damage to their education. So it's about trying to strike that level of balance and indicated that particularly that it will impact on certain groups uh, as a whole. Look, I'm conscious, I think, sometimes that in terms of the staggered re-entry, that at the moment that seems to be the only thing that's being offered in some jurisdictions, and in some jurisdictions there's nothing of that nature being offered um, at all. Um, and that, if you like, to some extent can be seen almost to tick a box. I think that, that what we do want to see is where we can make smart interventions, which not only, if you like, make an impact on day one, but the 10 days to the, down the line are still working 20 days down the line. So it's, it's about actually trying to get that package of measures, which I think is a more strategic approach to trying to be able to combat that, while accepting that as we're in a fast-moving situation that there may still be very dramatic changes that may be required, uh, because none of us knows precisely where we're going to be in a month's time or two months' time, and sometimes that can be both virtuous uh, or problematic. Yes, and I'd like to thank the Minister for his response and just on another issue that was raised earlier also. Um, one of the principals have been expressing concerns in relation to the exam centre um, arrangements and the need to spread out the pupils um, in a safe enough way where they're, they're still socially distancing. 
However, with the schools due back on the 4th of January, there's concerns around um, the capacity of the invigilators that are going to be available. Um, and is the minister already aware of this issue? And if so, what's he doing to ensure that schools will have the necessary staff required to invigilate exams? Thank you. There is an opportunity through the, uh, through the COVID funding to bring in additional staff, additional uh, substitutes, and particularly if we're talking about from an exam situation, those would be in a scenario in which um, there would not be individuals who would be needed for a very long period of time. Principally, the, uh, the GCSE subjects that are being examined in January uh, will, largely speaking, be in the second week of January, uh, which will obviously tie up teachers as well. And it may well be that whatever arrangements schools are making you know, may make some level of adjustments to their timetables uh, within that. But I think there is the opportunity for schools to draw down on the funding that, it, that is there in terms of uh, substitutes. As I said, the, the principal aim is to try to make sure then that all public health guidance is, is, is followed. And the scale of, of GCSEs, because it will be any number of schools that they're not doing anything within the January series, but I think there are somewhere in the region about 25 or 26,000 individuals who are entered for GCSEs in January. They, they prepared up for those, and there's the opportunity must be given for them to take it. And I think that comprises, I think off the top of my head, around about 48,000 individual exams. So there is a large scale um, of that. But we should also remember that on a daily basis, we're dealing with 300,000 plus children being in school. So it should be something that's ultimately able to be managed. Um, but schools may need to give a bit of thought as to whether they make any levels of adjustments, particularly as well, to arrangements that week. So that, for example, it may well be that they look at a slightly different staggering in terms of when their pupils come in within that week. But we'll be happy to work with schools on that issue. Call Paula Bradshaw. Hey, Mr. Speaker, um, Minister, as, as a health lead for the Alliance Party, I've been concerned for a long time that there's no real way to monitor compliance for um, people who are self-isolating. Um, parents who've contacted me are concerned um, about sending their, their children to these test centres in case there are children who have turned up who have symptoms or are asymptomatic um, for fear that they'll get it, but also the fact that um, other parents um, as they are afraid to not send their children because they're not sure what will happen if they, if they don't turn up on that day in terms of how they get into their chosen school. What, what is the actual position in terms of transfer if pupils do not attend the test centres? Thank you. I, I'm assuming the member, because I've in the previous answer, obviously, given that in terms of the scale of numbers, probably the biggest single issue is around the GCSEs. Uh, look, it is up to each test centre to put in place and have to be public health compliant. That means, for example, uh, if we're talking about the transfer tests, and both AQE and PPTC have said this in writing. Again, this is not something which has perhaps been as well publicised perhaps as it should be, that a part of their arrangements, they will ensure that where pupils are sitting are sitting within bubbles the, the bubbles that are relate to their own classes, um, that indeed a range of measures in terms of distance separation, uh, in terms of all the health measures. And, and the reality is that irrespective of uh, whether it is a scenario of a private test through, through transfer test, whether it is an individual school test, which is not in that sense a public test, but is done through simply the school, or whether it's public examination of GCSE, the exact same requirements will be there for all occasions, which is a list of measures to make sure that their public health guidance uh, is fulfilled. Now, you know, um, can there be guarantee in every case, even just in terms of normal activity, that absolutely everybody complies uh, as individuals? 
No, there's, there's absolutely no 100% guarantee, but I think every measure that will be taken um, is being taken. Paula um, thank you, Minister. I, I don't think he addressed the point about those children who are self-isolating who don't attend. So, what, is, what are the arrangements for September? But my second part of that really is my supplementary is: um, Is there any way then that, that teachers could play a role in actually, as we saw in the summer of the GCSEs and A levels, that the teachers themselves could could put forward a grade for the transfer test that could be acceptable for grammar schools for the transition? I think the problem with that is that it would be. First of all, the level of data which is there, even on the basis of what's there in post-primary schools, to be able to make a judgment call on where a child sits academically is a lot less available to a primary school than it would be to a post-primary. I think the, the issue, and first of all, I would say as well that the criteria which is applied for entry is ultimately a matter to the schools themselves, but I, I don't think there would be, uh, in, unless they're looking at particular individual cases in extreme circumstances, where the level of information would be available, but also that you could have something which is um, across the board. Uh, and what I mean by that is, if you're getting, for instance, within any post-primary school that uses academic selection, for example, maybe 15 or 20 different schools or more where they are, where pupils from those schools are applying, simply one parent, one teacher saying, uh, "Child X is of such and such a standard," but actually the person to assess child Y in a completely different school is somebody completely different. How you get any level of moderation between that, I think, is, is something that would be fairly uh, impossible in that regard. Call John O'Dowd. Uh, thank you, Karen Collier. Thank you, Minister. You said in response to my colleague, Caroline Cullen, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, you're not in a different place from health. Can you confirm that uh, the health minister, the chief medical officer, and the chief scientific advisor are satisfied that the measures you have outlined today will allow education to play its part in reducing the spread of COVID-19? From that point of view, I don't want to break the confidentiality of individual conversations, but I did give an indication that this morning my officials were meeting with Chief Medical Officer and Chief Scientific Advisor, arising out of those, those conversations, um, further refinements, done things, and I spoke directly to the Chief Medical Officer, uh, I suppose, approximately about an hour and a half before I appeared at the, at the Assembly. And I believe that, that where health is and education are in a situation which both feel that it's a reasonable position to be in in that regard. Now, if education was doing it without complete reference to health, we would be possibly in a slightly different position. If health was, was doing things and they didn't have to concern themselves with education, you know, would this be identical? Possibly not. But from a practical point of view, we are in the same, without breaching the confidentiality of discussions which have taken place, not simply with officials, but directly with Chief Medical Officer, the discussions that took place this morning with Chief Scientific Advisor, with the Minister. You know, I believe that, that we've reached a position which I think is satisfactory to both education and health. Minister, given the seriousness of the situation and the deteriorating situation, I would hope this is more than a conversation. I would like to think that there is written confirmation and engagement between the Department of Education and the Department of Health in relation to this matter. This isn't about conversations. This is about two departments setting out a policy which is protecting public health. Well, with respect on it, we are in a very fast-moving environment. You know, a, perhaps a conversation gives a, an impression of some sort of um, light chit-chat that is not the case. Been, these things have been gone into in depth. There have been clear-cut discussions uh, in depth within that. There has been, at times, uh, positions that have been put down. Um, from that point of view, 
So it is about trying to get that, uh, that position in which education and health is on, uh, is on the same page, and I believe that to be the case. Thank you, um, Mr Speaker. Uh, Minister, your statement refers to a number of measures which are under uh, consideration. And uh, at what point will the school principals be informed of those decisions, given that you're insisting on their early return in January? Insisting that they return, uh, frankly, at the same time as, as they would usually return. It's not an early return. Uh, that is the normal time, from a practical point of view, that they do return. Uh, around a range of those measures, uh, there will be discussions to flesh out some of the detail of this with a range of, of organisations, which will mean that it may not be that in every case everything is available on you know, Monday the 4th, but I think all those are things that are achievable within the first week uh, of that, and it is about trying to make sure, because there will be different stakeholders will be involved. Some of them don't relate directly to within the schools themselves, because I think one of the, the issues that has been raised, and raised fairly consistently by the Chief Medical Officer and the Chief Scientific Advisor is not what is happening within the boundaries of the school because actually there is a very strong controlled environment. That is not really where the major problem in terms of spread of the virus is. It is actually about a range of issues which affect young people simply beyond the boundaries of the school. So some of these will be directly relevant to the school principals. Others may be a little bit more tangential in, in that regard, but the aim is to work with all stakeholders to be able to provide that level of certainty and information as soon as possible. Um, thank you, Mr Speaker. I note that many of the measures that you are considering have already been implemented in other jurisdictions with quite a bit of success, I understand. But uh, in relation to the, the role that school inspectors will have, particularly when remote learning is introduced in early, or in the, on the 25th of January, uh, how are you going to ensure that there is a consistent approach and it is not a postcode lottery? Uh, I think there's a role for the inspectorate and particularly also for the link officers, which I think was one of the most, um, as it turned out, successful innovations that, that are there. And again, particularly if the focus is on post-primary schools, it enables actually a smaller cadre of schools rather than simply uh, if we involve, post, uh, we involve primary schools in terms, of, in terms of numbers. So it will be about uh, that there will be a role for the inspectorate and for link officers to try to make sure there's as much consistency as, as possible. Can that be 100% achieved? I suspect not. And it is also the case that, that even with the best possible, and there are some very good examples of remote learning that are out there, again, its by its nature cannot be as good as face-to-face -face teaching because children, in many cases, will not respond as well with remote learning than being in the environment of um, teachers being directly in front of them. I call Rachel Woods. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I thank the Minister for his statement. Um, within the statement, it said that remote learning would need to be brought in for post-primaries and the non-year students from the 25th of January. Minister, can I ask what the rationale is for the 25th of January? It's to give schools a little bit of time, particularly also to ensure, I think as has been mentioned I think by some of the members, to ensure that this is done well and done consistently across schools. It is about giving schools a certain level of preparation time. And particularly if people are preparing for remote learning, Mentions we made on the basis of post-primary schools that we will, for instance, have a large number of our post-primary school pupils who are going to be doing, for example, examinations uh, during that second week of January, and where that will probably, as indicated, uh, draw in more staff in to be able to manage those. So it's got to be a, a level of preparation time that can be put in place for that to happen, and happen in a way so that it's not simply 
a haphazard nature. So that is why there's going to be a little bit of lead-in time before that, that happens. But also, I think, recognising ultimately that, that remote learning will not, by its nature, be as good as face-to-face -face teaching. Rachel Wood, supplementary. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I thank the Minister for his answers so far. Um, and on a different aspect, can I ask the Minister what impact the six-week lockdown will have on youth work and youth services? Will they still be allowed to operate? Look, we'll be developing, indeed, working with health to develop specific advice. I think, given the time frame that is, is there, uh, the concentration has been very directly in terms of schools. But look, I'm very conscious of the fact, again, having in different parts of Northern Ireland, and I, I, look, I think one of the things, and I'll hold my hands up as being guilty of this as, as well, youth service, indeed, what is being delivered on the ground for young people through youth service is often seen as being almost to the side of education, that it's not as important as, as schools. There's a tremendous and very good job being paid by your, being done by our youth workers and also those within youth service and NEA. And I want to particularly to use and utilise that service, particularly in the days to come, that we can actually then get messaging on, on the ground. The detail of what will be there in terms of the interactions um, with young people, and it's particularly important, having visited, for instance, recently, um, a youth service facility which particularly deal, uh, which catered for, indeed it was the largest in the area, for um, children particularly with special educational needs. If anybody needed convincing of the need for children to be directly in face-to-face, -face, having that advantage in a youth setting or a school setting, uh, that would have certainly convinced, I think, pretty much anybody. Call Jim Allister. Thank you. Um, might I recommend to the minister in his situation an exhortation from Abraham Lincoln, who said this, be sure you put your feet in the right place, then stand firm. Would the minister agree that we can't go any further in compromising the delivery of teaching, in compromising the content of teaching? and in compromising the testing of teaching without fatally compromising the educational opportunities of the class of 2020 and 2021. I agree with the, the member that the absolute maximum needs to be done to protect um, our young people, protect the teaching uh, within that. And that is why any actions that will be taken, even the actions that are announced today, are done with the highest level of reluctance. I have to say the only thing I cannot be certain of is what the future holds, so I cannot give a completely blanket guarantee on that basis, but I will certainly do all that I can uh, to, um, to protect the quality of education uh, that, is, that is there. Um, and also, I suppose, given the fact that there is um, uh, a very divergent range of views that is, generally speaking, thrown my way from one extreme to the other, uh, in terms of uh, some of my decisions, I will... It is perhaps well that under, um, to take the Abraham Lincoln uh, analogy, it's maybe just as well that under current restrictions I'm not in a position to visit the theatre. Jim Allister, supplementary, and let's not have a Gettysburg address. Thank you. <laughs> oh, you're not get, you know, I, I, I couldn't even aspire to that, Mr Speaker. <laughs> does, the, does the Minister agree that those who would suffer the most if the advice of some in this House to diminish education are those, in fact, who can afford to uh, suffer any reduction the least. Um, in the spirit of not 
uh, giving the Gettysburg Address, which, to be fair, only lasted for three minutes, 20 seconds, and was criticised at the time for being far too short. I appreciate the Gettysburg Address sometimes is shorter than some of my answers in this, in this House. But in the, in, the, um, in the spirit of brevity, I'll simply say yes to the member. Jerry Carl. Thank you, Ministers. Despite the Health Minister pressing the school shooting continue as usual, you are effectively doing so, uh, potentially placing the lives of many students, teachers, education workers, vulnerable people at risk. Will you perform another U-turn, or will you continue down the path uh, of uh, a reckless path um, and placing so many people in danger and at risk? Well, it's interesting that the great representation of, of socialism here is actually advocating a situation in which those who would be most disadvantaged through disruption of education would be those who are most socially disadvantaged. That seems to me to be a funny interpretation uh, of, um, of socialism on that, on that basis. I will always take into account and be, try and be as responsible uh, as possible and to try to protect the future of our young people, the future of the opportunity of the young people, which the, whatever level of disruption happens to the education will undoubtedly damage. Jerry Carl, supplementary. I have to say, Mr. Speaker, it is quite uh, pathetic but consistent that the Minister taking uh, broad swipes of socialism. I'm talking about serious issues at hand here. Uh, the Minister um, has done nothing to alleviate the fears and anxiety of so many with the statement and answers uh, today. Given that schools and testing centres aren't immune from the virus spreading, and you have absolutely failed to implement a strategy to protect people in a bid to maintain the antiquated system of academic selection. Given that and the many failures, I and many others believe your position as Minister is untenable. Has he considered stepping aside? Uh, no. Um, you know, I think the, uh, uh, the members, uh, to be fair, at least has been very consistent in the um, level of um, constructive advice that he's given me, but the constructive advice to consider, to consider my position will not be one I'll be taking. I call Claire Sogden. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker, and thank you, Minister. Uh, Minister, I uh, was speaking with both teachers and parents at the weekend, and there seems to be a feeling of hopelessness about this current situation. One uh, principal saying that she felt despondent and undervalued. Now, I'm sure the Minister will disagree with those comments, but that perception exists. So what is the Minister doing to reassure both parents and teachers? And further, I would say my concern is around the level of trauma that children in particular are experiencing, and to an extent we're compounding that trauma by some of the messages we're putting out, you know, you're doing this for your granny. Children are interpreting that as that I'll kill my granny if I do this. Minister, that's not acceptable. We shouldn't be putting that level of anxiety onto children and the wider society in general. What are you doing to address this? I think I completely agree with the, the member. And I, I, you know, in terms of I, the opening remarks that I made in terms of my statement, uh, one of the side effects of COVID and indeed some of the reactions that we've had to take to COVID have been very damaging to children. I, I, you know, I indicated that, that while children, and for example, within Northern Ireland, I think uh, we, sad, we saw sadly one death, but we've only had one death of somebody under the age of 20. So clinically, children are a lot less vulnerable to this. But the impact on them, a wide range of, of other areas, including trauma, um, is there from the, the COVID virus. Look, I think that, that being at school, having that opportunity for regular learning is good for children's uh, mental health. So I'm trying, as part of that, to try to make sure that the level of disruption to them is kept to a minimum. And, and I think in terms of the impact that is there in terms of the long-term costs to children in terms of the mental health, well, you know, also, I suppose, some of the medical professions will be weighing up uh, the impact of spread. That is also critical, which is why 
that when particularly, more so than probably any other area, we are taking into account uh, across the board what decisions are taken, that uh, it is done on the basis of balancing out all the risks that are there to children. Uh, but I think inevitably, unfortunately, there will be levels of trauma that will be created through COVID. I think it's about trying to counteract those. That's why we put additional funding into well-being, while that would be something on a, on a basis. But my fear on this is that some of the damage that is there, that has been there for the last year to society, particularly towards children, maybe something which may not even be picked up immediately, maybe something that is there for years to come for some children. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and I appreciate the Minister's comments. Minister, you have a very capable adviser who's done a significant piece of work around adverse childhood experiences, and I have no doubt that the coronavirus experience is going to be part of that. And I think moving forward, I think we need to do more than that because it's not enough to say at this stage that this is going to be something that we find ourselves in the future. I think this is something that we need to be addressing now, and I appreciate you have put resources in place. But when I'm getting both teachers and parents telling me that just over the weekend that nothing, or that there's not enough being done, then I think we need to address this as soon as possible. To the maximum of my ability, to the maximum amount of the resources that are available, and obviously particularly there is both funding this year, which will be ongoing in terms of additional money in terms of mental health and wellbeing, but also then a level of specific amounts that's been made available to schools and also youth settings in terms of direct mental health. But, but look, the member does make a very valid point, um, which is that whatever level of intervention that we do make, and again, it's not something directly across the board, because one of the things I also have found is that in a lot of cases there will be information coming back that for a lot of children they've been extremely resilient towards this, but there are others who are not in that, that position. Can more be done if, if there were greater levels of resources and greater opportunities? Yes, they would, but I would always make sure that, that we do this to the maximum amount that, that is available. Call Colin McGrath. Very much, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, if the minister has a strange sensation in his fingers this week, it's his credibility with the teachers, parents, uh, and principals slipping through his fingers. Uh, and given that the minister is insisting upon proposing that some within schools have to wait until the 25th of January before moving uh, to online learning. Could the minister uh, detail to us or publish the medical evidence that he has that they won't catch and won't spread the virus during those first three weeks? And if he won't do that, will he explain to this House and to the public why he's keeping it secret? Not keeping anything secret. The reality is the virus is a risk wherever people are. Let us not pretend there is a particular point where people, if, if there was a particular point in this society where people could go and be safe from the virus, then that would be done. People are at risk. Yes, there is a risk at school. There is a risk at, in the community. There is a risk at home. And consequently, it is about balancing out where there are risks and also balancing out about the level of education that, that our children are getting, about the issues of mental health, of social deprivation. It is about a balance in all those things. And that is also something which I think is recognised by the medical experts. This is not simply a matter of take one course of action and you simply uh, you diminish everything from a medical point of view. It is about trying to reach a balance. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. And I welcome the admission by the Minister that there is a risk at school, but maybe he would accept that people are disappointed that there's nothing additional or extra being done on the 4th of January to protect from that risk, and that is what most people are angry about. But given that in January private companies 
will use publicly funded education premises to deliver the transfer tests. Is the Minister certain that they will adhere to the public health guidelines in terms of numbers and that there will be no more than 15 people in those gatherings? And what will he be doing to ensure that that is adhered to? Every test, whether it's a transfer test, whether it is a school test, whether it's a GCSE, there is a requirement on anybody to follow the same guidance and indicated, I think, that was something that was indicated, not simply by myself, but I think in answer to some of the wide-ranging questions the Health Minister had to address earlier on. That's the same throughout. And, you know, the reality is that, that people shouldn't use this crisis to bring out long-standing opposition simply to academic selection. It is about actually ensuring that in all cases, everybody is kept as safe as possible, while there is no guarantee for anybody 100%, 100% of the time. Call Kelly Armstrong. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker, and thank you very much, Minister. Minister, just following on from Mr. McGrath's point, um, we know that GCSEs will go ahead. They're underneath your remit. Um, transfer tests are not. So, can I just ask for clarification for the House and for the public listening in? What legal exemption has been given to those transfer test providers who are actually calling these tests together at a time when others are told not to call mass gatherings together? Um, in particular, I draw your attention to the fact that I've received a call from a church in our area who was not able to have Christmas services they're actually having it on Boxing Day because they would be fall foul of the regulations where they were calling a mass gathering together so just to clarify what legal exemption have these private providers been given the position and the member will be aware first of all in terms of uh, Boxing Day in terms of services there are particular restrictions that are being put in place over the seven day period directly after Christmas which, which create a higher level of, of restriction than would be for the, the rest of the times. So that is there in terms of regulations. But there is a broad exemption um, for, in terms of the regulations for matters which would be for an educational purpose in that regard. So there is no, there is no legal breach by way of, of those. But, well, uh, you know, I see some people, self-appointed lawyers, may take a different view, but there is no legal breach uh, of tests taking place. And again, the issue is that any action that needs to be taken has to be completely compatible with public health guidance. Can I ask you something, Youth clubs are not allowed to happen within primary schools and, and other schools across Northern Ireland because um, that's outside of education. These transfer tests you've said in many statements are outside of your control. It will be up to those external providers to run them. And also, I'll ask you then, you've mentioned on several occasions that they will have to comply with the regulations and provide their own risk assessments and health and safety assessments. Can you tell me who's actually um, overlooking those risk assessments to say whether or not they are complying with what education requires of use of their buildings and for the regulations? From that point of view, each school that is doing the, the test will need to actually, as part of the regulations, will need to do their own risk assessment. They will need to, uh, to be compliant uh, with that. And indeed, I would, again, I would say that, that people can agree or disagree with the transfer test to say that they are not there for, an, for a particular educational purpose, whether you agree with it or not, is clearly something that is for an educational purpose. Minister, uh, the revelation of more infectious strain of this virus is causing great alarm. 
Uh, can you assure us that you are working closely with the DOH to ensure that vital questions and answers before school returns? Questions such as do social distancing measures need to be reviewed, increase the space between pupils, reduce the time, the proximity to other children, and ventilation is effective in mitigating measures as it once was? And is it more airborne, easily transmitted by touch as before? Thank you, Minister. I think that the issue about um, look, there will be people who will be epidemiologists who will be in a better position to answer some of that directly. We are working closely with health. From even just some questions I asked last night of the Chief Scientific Advisor, it is not a question of it is more airborne, or indeed there is no evidence at this stage that, for example, um, that. Um, touching a particular surface, that the new COVID lasts a particular longer period or anything of that nature. There is one principal distinction, and it is also the case that, that so far the evidence would suggest, although we are in an evolving situation, that um, someone catching this strain is ultimately at the same level of risk to their lives and to serious health as the, the current. But there, there is no particular indication so far that the strain of it is more severe in terms of its impact. Um, nor indeed is there any indication, though again, uh, this is being checked, that the, the vaccine is any, anything less effective. It was explained to me that, that essentially the difference is that um, someone, for instance, who is breathing in uh, the, the virus, what will happen is that you will breathe in a certain amount and you will then breathe out a certain amount. And effectively, one of the areas in which potentially you will catch or not catch will be the extent to which the virus remains within your system whenever you've ingested it. And if I use a, sort of a certain level of example or analogy, the difference is largely because of the genetic difference of the virus. It sort of catches more uh, whenever it is ingested. That is the problem. But what it does mean that in terms of um, the general preventative measures, whether we're talking about within schools or more generally in society, of things such as level of social distance, such as hygiene, uh, such as face coverings, are no more or no less effective, it appears at the moment, uh, with the new strain than the old strain. That would lead, while we'll always look to see whether there's updated guidance as, as such, that would suggest that in terms of the behavioural side of things, the precautions that people should take to try to avoid um, the new strain. Uh, I think you know, the fact that it's more transmittable it should mean that people should be more on their guard. But in terms of physical interactions that they take, it's probably the same um, as before. Minister, um, if it's unsafe for six people to be together, so how on earth is it safe for 30 to be in a classroom with a teacher, to be together in a classroom with no social distancing? Well, in terms of the six people, a lot of that is about the issue of transfer within the community and within the home. And the situation is such... Now, again... Um, the situation is such that the concern that a large percentage of the spread of the virus is taking place at a community level and particularly within the home, because that will be by its nature a lot less regulated than will be in other environments. So anything that we have, we have done in terms of restart of schools has been in line with public health guidance and what is deemed, uh, what is deemed safe uh, within that. Taking on board, I think, what has been said by, by others, there is no place that is absolutely 100% safe. I mean, unless effectively someone is going to lock themselves in their own house and have no contact whatsoever with anybody else ever again. There is nowhere because interaction always carries some level of risk. I call Stuart Dixon. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. Minister, um, 
do you recognise that sending out letters late on a Friday to schools that by and large had closed for the Christmas break um, has caused a great deal of concern and indeed has compromised the uh, confidence of teachers, uh, the teaching community, principals, school governors, parents and indeed uh, students, other than the fact that your behaviour on Friday evening in doing that uh, was reprehensible and regrettable? Well, I'll take your compliments in, in relation to it. Given the fact that the decision by the executive was only taken on Thursday afternoon, there was a, as I indicated in my, my statement, there was a desire to get clarity to schools as quickly as possible. Um, but given the fact that, that the decision was only taken on Thursday afternoon, that meant that the earliest that any decision and any further decision, and given the fact that there was contact made with health on, on the Friday uh, as well, the earliest any decision could be taken uh, would be on the Friday. So there are many things I can be accused of. Uh, being a time lord and being able to go back in time is not one of them. Supplementary, Stuart Dixon. Well, Minister, I hear what you say, but the reality is that you are, in that, to that extent, a standalone minister, and you should be making your own plans and your own decisions about things. It didn't require an executive decision for you to write to schools in advance of the Christmas holidays. The member says that, but in terms of what additional measures, and indeed uh, in terms of what was announced on the Friday was the issue of resumption. Now, you know, members have got to be, and the members have got to be consistent. Either I am not working with, with health and going on a solo run, or alternatively I'm consulting with health and trying to make sure that what is compatible. I can't be in the position to be both in that regard. And if the member is saying that in terms of any wider executive decision and indeed any engagement with health, I should simply disregard that and have taken decisions a couple of weeks ago ahead of that. Well, again, the member is shaking his head, but that's exactly what he's advocating that I did. He said, he said you're in a position simply to announce this yourself. And so, you know, the reality, the reality is that I want to make sure that there is discussions take place between the relevant departments to make sure that we have a consistent position. And again, actions that are taken are of the back ultimately as well, across the board, not just in my department but others, of executive decisions. And I can't go back in time and take preemptive decisions ahead of where the executive would be. Members, that concludes questions on the statement. The next item on the agenda is the date, time and place of our next meeting. We have yet to receive confirmation from the executive about when ministers will next come to make statements to the committee. As soon as that confirmation has been received, written notification of the time and date of our next meeting will be issued to members in the usual way. That concludes this meeting of the Ad Hoc Committee. The meeting is now adjourned. And Merry Christmas to everyone and uh, safe home, safe holidays.